This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Knockback is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to CollinsLastStand.com. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined as always by my brother, Dagan Peter Cetera Moriarty, because <laughs> he is the inspiration. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. How are you? You're the meaning in my life. You're the inspiration. You give meaning to my life. I had no idea you were going there. I mean, this is, I'm, I'm impressed with myself right now. I had no idea you were going there. In fact, I had a whole yeah. different song stuck in my head. Oh. We don't need another hero. Boom, boom. We don't need to know the way home. We don't what is need that? another hero. Thunderdome. Oh, is- Tina Turner. We don't need another Tina hero. Turner, right. Parentheses. Gotcha. Thunderdome. I think that's the title. Oh, yeah, it is. I'm looking it up now. Yeah, 1985, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Nominated for Golden Globe Award for Best Original Song. Of course it was. Somehow. It's Tina. Tina. <laughs> Tina. Well, I, I I don't know if you remember. I was I think I was with you. So I have a really weird thing for Peter Cetera. I love Peter Cetera. Yes, you do. And so... I must give a shout out to Erin, my ex-girlfriend, because when we were in, we used to go to Vegas all the time. And when we were in Vegas once, she literally, she literally lied to me and convinced me that Peter Cetera was like playing at some theater there. And I like totally believed her. And she felt really bit like I like actually bought into it. And she felt so bad. She like told me almost immediately that she was lying to me. And I was like, what was the? Why would you? Why would you tell me Peter Cetera was playing here? So, so, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't thrilled about that because I felt that I might have had an opportunity to see him, but but it wasn't so. You know what? Probably the only time Peter Cetera was significant enough to be lied about. So kind of props for Peter. Yeah. He probably would feel good about that. No, he's pretty know, amped. He's pretty he's pretty psyched. He does that song in the Karate Kid Part Two, right? As well. Is that yes, it? that's right. That's right. I forgot all about that. We talked about that during our Karate Kid episode, I think. Karate yeah, Kid what trilogy. is the, it's uh oh Glory of Love. Yeah, that's, that's a fucking that's actually the third one. That's a that's a that's a no, it is oh, the second is that one. The that's third? A, a jam. No, it is the second one. Second it is one. the second okay. one. Okay. There's I'm looking at the preview of the music video right now. Yeah, that's he's singing. He's so han- he's so handsome. He is <sighs> handsome. He's a handsome dude. Yeah. I used to skate with a guy. I didn't know him that well. He was just kind of like part of the Philly love park ensemble in the 90s he looked exactly like peter cetera it was weird it was actually strange and like peter cetera i never really paid 
that much attention to Peter Cetera. Was Peter Cetera the lead singer of Boston? Chicago. Chicago. Okay. <laughs> one of those one of those city bands. One yeah, of one of those two. Bands. Yeah, exactly. I was close. I was pretty close. I was about 1,500 miles off. <laughs> but yeah, dude, it was so crazy. Like, it was just so glaringly, I had flashbacks of like 80s, mid 80s MTV every time I saw this kid pop up at, at Love Park because he was a dead ringer. It looked like he was almost trying, like the hairstyle, the hair was quaffed just the same way. It was really strange. It was a, it was a strange send up. And it was so interesting because he was kind of like, kind of like one of those homey type of dudes like very much on the on a hip-hop edge and you know you knew he had no idea who Peter Cetera even was so it was just kind of comical that he was such a disparate personality from the person he looked exactly like and probably no one ever told him because no one in his sphere probably even knew who Peter Cetera was so I I always laugh at that I I wish I knew his name so I could give him some props but we'll just call him Peter 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 Cetera actually gave Chicago an, uh, an ultimatum because he's not the singer of Chicago anymore. He left in the mid 80s, actually. So maybe a third of the way through, but after all most of their big hits. But he actually was like wanting to do a solo career. And they were basically like, no. <laughs> <laughs> really? <laughs> and that's when. Yeah. And that's when Glory of Love came out. That was his song that he like, came out with by himself. His so there song. How and you that's like how we tie now? in. Uh, Exactly. Right. And now, the, yeah, now he's he's doing his thing. I mean, I don't know I, what I liked about Chicago, too. If anyone's a fan of theirs, is that they name their records Chicago and then a number and they're up to, I think, Chicago 28 or something like oh, insane shit. like that. Oh, wow. So. So they're still bouncing around still as going. they were, but nice. Good for them. All right, Dave, let's see here. Knockback, our retro and nostalgia podcast. We put this up each and every week. You can listen to it on free feeds like many thousands of you do. But if you want to support us, on Patreon at patreon.com slash Collins last stand, like 10,000 of you do. You can get early ad free access to our show, the ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas to our show. You can submit topic ideas and vote on other topic ideas. Speaking of which, Dig, I just wanted to let the audience know that we are stacking up a couple of game topics again mm-hmm. Horizon Zero Dawn and Bioshock Infinite. Uh, we're going to need a little bit more time on those. We want to sprinkle more games in than we're able to, but they're just so demanding of time that. It's especially hard for Dagan to do in his current situation with his kids distance learning and all of that. So you got to give us a little bit more time on that. Horizon will come first and Bioshock Infinite. My hope would be that we get those both out by the end of the year. PSP PlayStation Portable is also a recently voted on topic. Right. We'll do that next year. Dagan's got a, Dagan has no PSP experience, so he's going to need to catch up with that. I think he has my PSPs, so I do. He should be able to mess around with those. I don't really need to mess around with them to remember I was there <laughs> in you the industry on the cutting edge. So uh, so we'll get to that as well and just keep voting and all of that. Game topics don't slip through very often, but they do stack up. So I just wanted to let everyone know we we are aware of that and we want to get them out as soon as possible. You can blame Dagan's children. Yes, they're the uh, worst for that. The worst. Thank you for your patience on their behalf. It's their fault. It definitely is their fault. So, <laughs> Dagan, let's kick it over to you for our opening segment. I believe this is the last one we're doing of this nature. So I'll let you explain it from here. And uh, so take it away. It is indeed, my friend. It's so funny. I was talking to Colin earlier, talking of distance learning and the day job and all that. I- I'm pretty much subsisting at this point on iced coffee and hope, basically. And I don't think I even have that much hope 
So it's mostly just right. iced coffee. I'm just running on iced coffee right now. You're running is, low on hope. <laughs> running low on hope. I but you know we could tip the scales with the iced coffee. The iced coffee could play fill in and uh, hanging in there. But you know what? Doing knockback, I have to say, it's like splashing my face with nice cold water. It's like a nice little wake up in the middle, right in the middle, dead center in the middle of the week. Breaks things up, breaks up the monotony. Just a little treat. So I appreciate it. This is actually nice for me. So Kyle, you were talking about our opening segment, fan versus fan. Week number 10. Welcome, rap fans, to the Thunderdome of podcasting poetry. We do need another hero. Sorry, Tina Turner. Ladies and gentlemen, today we give you our 10th week, our final week of fan versus fan round one. We've come to a major milestone here, and I'm proud of all of you. These hallowed grounds soaked with the blood of our mighty competitors. So many pens shattered upon these fields of battle. Kyle, we have three orders of business today. Now, I have to say, let me actually start by saying this. We have a period now going into the next couple of weeks of brief meditation and reflection. Think of Qui-Gon Jinn during his battle with mm. Darth Maul, where he just has that little respite, gets down on his knees, meditates, a little moment of silence. So we'll need to get the results of the week nine and week 10 voting. And then, ooh, then, woe be to the faint-hearted, get ready for the fan versus fan round two. Prepare yourselves. Much more on that in approximately two weeks' time. So get ready. But for now, let's start today by we have to celebrate the week eight contestants, and of course, our week eight winner, hats off to both of them. Again, that was our battle between Iller Shade of Pale, not his God-given name, I don't believe, and Francis Yu. So it just turned out hot off the Twitter poll presses. Iller Shade of Pale has won that battle. So the week eight battle, we have our winner, Iller Shade of you Pale. You win. You win. Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> perfect that wasn't that was pretty good that you, you, your impression there that wasn't bad at all that wasn't Very bad enthusiastic i just got lucky i just got lucky you know what it wasn't it wasn't perfect but as a, he actually illustrated pale won by a pretty large margin the battles have been coming down like 60 40 for the most part especially over the last few this one was by a little bit of a wider margin i thought both contestants performed well illustrate of pale you get the w this time now and also a reminder the week nine Twitter poll goes live tomorrow as of the time of this recording. So remember, if you can, to rock the vote. And all we have to do today, Kyle, we have to read our week 10, our final week, our battles, our contestants. Now, we had something happen this week. We actually had a contestant go MIA on us. AWOL, I could not get in touch with this person. And you know what? I actually feared this all along. It's actually pretty interesting that it's the first time it's happened because if you think about it- You were it, tempting fate. You were tempting fate the entire time. You really you, were. You had to. You had to, right? Because th think about it. Two and a half, three months ago is when we first sort of collected interest. I had people slide into the DMs, express interest, get their names in the hat for the running, to get into the running. And, you know, a lot could happen with any one of those people in two and a half or three months. They get busy- God forbid something happens in their lives, or maybe they just taken a break from social media, whatever. 
So we had one person sort of go MIA. So we had a hero step in and fill in last minute. I, just I need put- a hero. <laughs> I you- need a hero into the middle of the night. Well, I don't even know what she says. You gotta be strong and you gotta be messy and you gotta look out for the fire. That's a good one. Who is that? Bonnie Who's Taylor. Seen? Oh, Bonnie right. Taylor, I think. That's right. right? Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. Sorry, I interrupted you, but that's what came No, that's all right. So we had someone step in. <laughs> so, I mean, how crazy is that? It gets down all the way to week 10. That finally happened. Somebody kind of went missing. I couldn't get in touch with this person. I tried. And also, that person, I, I still think that person hasn't been responsive yet, but they get Wait, 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 wait. What is the, what is the person's name? You want to you put them out on blast? Yeah. You do. do. You really do? Yeah. It is... Yeah. Oh, hold on. I got I to gotta look in the hat. Hold on, Colin. I'm going off mic for a sec. Okay, I'm back on the mic. Just plugging my, head, my headphones back in. It is Aaron Lay. I cannot find Aaron. Aaron has gone. Aaron, you're banned. You're is banned. he banned? You're banned. Oh, shit. Because you know Sorry. what? I actually promised him the opposite. I promised him that he could have his name in the hat twice for the next opening segment. But also, you're banned. So... That's it. That's what it is. It's it going to be one down. or the other. I don't know which one it's going to be yet. We'll find out. <laughs> Colin's got to call it on this one. It's his. It's I have his to company. be. Let, let's see how magnanimous I am when we start mm. the next uh, the next segment. All anyway, right. Think onward. about it. Aaron, say your prayers. You have a chance, however slim. So, Aaron, I don't know where you're at. We'll see how your fortunes play out in the weeks to come as per Colin's gavel. But. We have Austin Killian, our hero, late to the battle, volunteered last minute, and actually even said to me, when I thanked him profusely, said to me, I'm just doing my job. Okay, that's wow. That's the definition of a hero. I'm inspired. So that's my first, for today's topic, Austin Killian, you are my first inspiration. I'm going to mention you right here. I give you a nod. Now, you're taking on, Austin is taking on Another one of my heroes, super fan of the show, Clark, Clark Petrie. So today we have Austin Killian versus Clark Petrie to round versus. out. Versus. Versus. Yep. <laughs> this whole this whole thing should have been done in a in a in a Street Fighter style. Maybe even like, yeah. What were we thinking, man? We we should have got the soundboard up. Maybe man, we totally. Maybe we up. do it on the we're second not, round, or maybe we even we vacillate could. between. Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat. You know, it's very polarizing. There's Mortal Kombat fans. There's Street Fighter fans. Never the two shall meet. It's definitely polarizing if you if you have no taste. Exactly. Then I, then I imagine it's pretty tol- it's pretty polarizing. But <laughs> for people that have that have taste, it's not it's probably not an incredibly polarizing thing. Isn't it funny you know, though? I like, just wanted to throw that out there. I hear I totally hear you. I'm totally with you on that, cough. hundred percent. I know where you're going with that. But there's every once in a while. I admire a YouTube gamer or somebody maybe even in my own life who's a, a big gamer who has exquisite taste in gaming and then they come down on that epic argument on the Mortal Kombat side. And I'm just always so confused by that. I'm like, but what? But you're breaking my heart. You have great taste in games, but you come down on Mortal Kombat over Street Fighter? That's that's almost it's a, questionable. It's unacceptable. It's questionable. It's unacceptable. I was talking to... Uh, it's funny that Mortal Kombat came up because I was talking to my, my friend Mama Micah, a uh, fan of the show. People know her on Twitter. She does some YouTube stuff. And um, she was saying how she likes to watch fighting game community stuff with Mortal Kombat. And I thought that was so funny because 
I like watching a lot of the stuff from Evo had a, a big falling out this year. But generally speaking, I like watching the fighting tournaments with Street Fighter. And I really like the fighting tournaments with Arc System Works games because those games are so technical. Oh, my God. And deep yeah. and beautiful. I mean, those games are also beautiful. Gorgeous. But uh, so I was making fun of her a little bit, too. I'm like, Mortal Kombat. <laughs> it's it's one of those it's one of those things where I, I just from my from my throne, I guess it, it's the same thing with Mario and Sonic where you can't come on. You can't. I understand if you like Sonic, but are you going to say that? Are you really going to look at me dead in the eye and tell me that Mario is uh, is deficient to Sonic or that Mortal Kombat? You really think that Mortal Kombat's better than Street Fighter? Oof. All right. I mean, OK, that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. I can't have that. Teach I, his own. I can't. Ha- I know you don't look at it this way. I don't think Kyle, but I, I and I'm going to say it. I'm going to get some shit for this, but I can't have that West over East shit. You know what I mean? I can't have it. Like Mortal Kombat is too West for me. Like I need, it's I need my American. Japanese flavor. I need it. I gotta have sure. it. Sure. You know what I mean? That's sure. just me. Well, That's just me. Mortal Kombat very cool though, in that it's made in uh, Chicago, which is pretty neat. We don't have very many studios working out of there, so that's it's cool, true. But it's true. And shout out to them. They really had a renaissance with the that series and with Injustice, which our nephew Dash is like really into. Oh, I didn't lately, know that. Which is cute. Yeah, so. Oh, that's cool. But nonetheless, what were we talking about? Oh, yes, the rap battle. So the, the rap, rap battle, indeed. We come yes, before I started tearing everyone down and insulting <laughs> them. Now, Kyle, as I believe we have it set up today, I'm going to be reading for Austin, our latecomer, our fill-in, our hero. Clark, you're going to be reading. You're going to be doing justice for Clark. Now, do you want to go for Clark first? Would you like to set me off on, on Austin first? How do you prefer we do it today for this last one? I think I went first last time, so you can go first this time. All right. If I'm remembering properly. All yeah. right, here we go. Again, latecomer, battle, brave-hearted warrior, Austin Killian. I have his rap right here in front of me on my laptop. And by the way, I issued this challenge probably, what, a half a day ago? He came through within a handful of hours and it's a pretty lengthy one, so I appreciate his enthusiasm. Hope I could do it justice. This one's titled Knockback, My Hero Rap. Oh, and by the way, the topic for this week's Our Last Round One Battle is My Hero. Or not my hero, not Dagan's hero, but their hero. So my hero, that's it. Broad topic, open-ended. They had the uh, autonomy to take it in whatever direction they wanted to. So here we go. Knockback, My Hero Rap by Austin. A hero, my hero, my opposite of zero. Fingers cracked, knock back. Please try to stick to the tempo. I've never identified a person as an ultimate one. The only person I could look to inspire is this son of a gun. I got countless sources, strong forces pushing my mind to become a sure shot pistol whipping creative mastermind. Ed McMillan made a killing from that super meat boy Neil Druckmann, such a stud and strutting without a need to play coy. Such unique, impactful players in the gaming industry. And let's not forget about the games that ignite the fire within me. Bioshock, Journey, Limbo, Rezogun gave me skills, yo. Inspired me to seize the day and get started programming pure gold. How do you break away from all the games sold on a daily basis? Have a look at those unique auteurs to lift me from this stasis. Chris Nolan, Tim Burton, Tarantino, The Berg, time-bending, blood-shedding, letting ideas surge. 
adventure around every corner, dinosaurs getting loose. Don't you dare say Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice. Then comes music, the OG passion for me. Pumping red hot chili peppers through until you can see. With a side of Incubus, 311, the works. Can't help but feel the world decided on me going berserk. But don't forget the ones there with me while I type at the desk. Colin, Chris, and Dagan, and the rest of CLS. Such great laughs and thoughtful podcasts. Joy just bursts at the seams. I feel inspired each time I hear them as they follow their dreams. I hope you can see now why there can't be just one. Here comes in different ways. Oh, heroes come in different ways, shaping who I'll become. I feel excitement for the future. Hope my dreams all come true. With my heroes there beside me, yeah, I'm sure they'll get to. All right, Austin, thank you very much, my friend. Very well done. Well done. Very well done. All right, let's see here. Clark Petrie is up. Here's what he has to say. He says, Defining my hero is a nebulous thing. Like many of us here, I search games for the king. Respect to Kratos, he's a real OG. But homie isn't a hero, he killed his family. Ryu and Ken can drag and punch my dick. Wow. <laughs> Trying to stop Bison so long, I'm a skeptic. Jesus Christ. Mario, Luigi, Peach, and the whole Nintendo roster. Goofy bunch of clowns call them hero imposters. Cloud's a buster just like his sword. These days, Final Fantasy leaves me bored. Joel gets saved by a badass little girl. Hero status done. Ellie's legit, but she isn't the one. Come sneaking in when you don't belong. Snake is deadly, but even Kojima doesn't know what's going on. Lots of badasses to look up to can only pick one. Many would say Link is the chosen son. But forget that elf hero of time, little bitch. Breath of the Wild sucks. Just like the Switch. Wow. <laughs> Maybe games aren't it. Perhaps my hero is real. Got love for my wife and son, but I'm not seeking emotional appeal. Serious talk. I'm straight from poverty. Seek a way out and join the military. 21 years later, senior officer in the Pentagon. Haters can't handle the level I'm on. Just hard work, luck in the land of the free. I'm the hero of this story because my hero is me. Wow. Wow. Turn it around. Turn it around. Shoruken. <laughs> yuck, yuck. Yuck, yuck, Pearl Jack. Yuck, yuck, Pearl Jack. <laughs> we are a Street Fighter soundboard. I mean, that's, I know, it's, that's just it. I must have heard that sound 100,000 times oh my in my God. entire life, you know? Yeah. Especially when you're getting like, hit out of it. It's like, you know, like, is it the video game soundbite or clip or snippet that you've heard maybe the most out of any any video game? It could be. For I don't me, know. It like, it's it's got to be something from Street Fighter. Sure, Haruken. Haruken, Haruken, Haruken. Tiger, tiger, tiger uppercut. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's got to be something, one of those for sure. Absolutely. Definitely. And by the way, Yoga. the Switch line, the Nintendo line, my son is out at the pet store, I think, buying a new fish. He definitely felt that line, you know, maybe felt to his knees or got a little faint there. <laughs> it's like Nintendo super fans the world over felt that Nintendo diss from Clark's rap. And Clark, by the way, thank you very much. I feel like Clark's getting a little overshadowed because Austin so valiantly stepped in today. But Clark also came through through way early. High quality stuff. One And, you know, you know, Clark and Austin, our last round kind of means something. Kind of means a little extra, a little extra special. 
compared to future weeks. So I want to thank you guys for participating. Now, the the segment's going to take a couple of weeks off, as I mentioned. I'll figure out what to do in the next episode or two to to open up the show. We'll do something new. I don't know if I'm going to usher in the brand new segment yet because I'm very excited about it and it needs to be orderly and it needs it also requires you guys participating. So we'll figure something out. But just let now we got to kind of take that meditation period, that reflection period while we tally the votes for week nine and week 10. And then we'll get back to how we're going to finish up this whole fan versus fan event, if that sounds like a plan to you guys. Sounds great. Looking forward to continuing. By the way, what was the uh, the guy that came in late? What was his name? Austin Killian is the is our Austin. I like how you were like, I don't know, man, Clark's getting overshadowed because Austin's just momentous <laughs> saving us on this amazing day. I'm yeah. sorry about little Clark getting overshadowed by the Cl- mighty Austin. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Clark. That's not right. The mighty Clark. Now, let's get into the topic. I actually wanted to bring this up, though, before we do. This is kind of a it's not kind of a completely non sequitur, but we are recording this on the day that the game I wrote, Twin Breaker, came to Switch, Xbox One, and PC. So Huge. if you don't have a PS4 and Vita and you want to check that out, uh, please do go buy it and enjoy it. It's weird seeing all the tweets about it from various entities, especially from Xbox. They ID at Xbox just tweeted out, when NASA's generation ships dis- disappear in interstellar, interstellar space, only two pilots are capable of figuring out why. And then they link to our game. Wow, nice. that's huge. That's huge. I'm so proud of you guys. It's amazing. This is going to open up a whole new, obviously, two new consoles and also PC. Is that correct? Yeah, PC as well. Yeah, we're on uh, Steam. It's going to be huge. And all of this. So, And uh, Major Nelson, it was weird seeing him tweet out about it. He just tweeted out, Twin Breaker, a Sacred Symbols adventure from Lily Mo and East Asia Soft is now available for Xbox One. So hopefully we... You know, it would be funny if we sold even more there. Guys, it would be really bad if we sold more on Xbox than we sold on PlayStation. So that can't happen. You know, don't hold back, (laughs) you know. (laughs) Good point. Very good point. I hadn't thought of that. I think we I think there's a a Barry and I were talking about this uh, Barry who actually makes the games. And we were saying, uh, I don't know if I'd be super surprised if we sold more on Switch. But we'll have to see. I did send Dagan a switch code. So we'll, he so it's another uh, format for him not to play the game on. No, we started and, uh, and Graydon started. Oh, too. did you? We both started. Yep. He was so excited when I told him I was like, I got the code here. He was like, wait, on, on the switch, you know, anything. I just said switch. I said the magic words. Uncle Collins game switch marriage made in heaven. Yeah, he's all over it. He started already. He's Does he like it? Than me. Yeah, he loves it. He's like eating it up. Awesome. I'm glad to hear that. It is really good, isn't it? It's so fun. All right. Uh, <laughs> and Herbroxia 2, our next game is coming soon. I just wrote the, a bunch of stuff for it today. So we're hitting our deadlines and all of that. So that's fun as well. But Dave, let's get into the topic at hand. I haven't even mentioned what it is yet, which is, uh, well, I did mention it at the top with a little bit of the Peter Cetera talk, but this is about <laughs> our inspirations, especially our childhood, you know, growing up inspirations, the people that inspired us. I must say that I'm taking a really sentimental tact with this one. Okay. This can be answered, I think, in any number of ways, but I've identified five people that I think indelibly altered my life for for the better and instilled in me various things 
that make up who I am. I wonder who those five people are. Ah, I love so it. I love it. Dig before we get into it. And obviously, Dagan has his list as well. We did not coordinate. So Dagan has his own way of approaching. And I kind of like doing it that way as well, where we have our different approaches. But Htrons wrote in this wrote into us on Patreon. And remember, you could support us on Patreon to write into the show. Patreon.com slash Collins last stand. He says, is it strange that I've never had a hero? And he says, by the way, in his in his text, an an hero. So it's like an hero. Plenty of people I admire and hate, hate, hate. Plenty of people I admire and have been positive influences on my life, but I've never really had someone I aspired to be. The question of who's your hero has always stumped me. And it's usually always at some work icebreaker session or something so awkward. Well, hopefully. Atrons, this show. By the time you're done listening to it, will I don't know, set something off in your own mind about the people in your life that did affect you in these positive ways and did inspire you to do different things. And I bet that when you're done listening to the show, you'll have an answer for the next time you're in one of those icebreaker meetings. Very nice. That's my declaration. I love bold. I love it. That's my declaration. Now, Dig, I want to kick it over to you because this was the topic that you actually had brought up. And I want to kind of kick it over to you about what made you want to do this topic and how you kind of approached lining up the people that might have inspired you as a young man. Well, these are I always love doing these topics because they're fun. Talk about a little personal reflections, get nostalgic. I love hearing what you have to say because there's actually things we don't even know about each other as brothers. So it's, you know, it's educational for me and interesting. But when I found out that I needed a little more time for Horizon, the game we have to soon cover. I said, let's go back and do one of these topics, make it an easy week. It's a frenetic time period right now. But I thought it could be really fun to just look back to our younger years and maybe get the opportunity to tell some stories and talk about some of the people on the show that we haven't gotten the chance to talk about yet or that we rarely get a chance to talk about. So I kind of took that tact where I'm going to try to call out, you know, we did a grandparents episode we talk about family a lot. We did a friends, a best friends episode. So I tried to sort of go in a direction where I could talk about some people that maybe I haven't referred to too often on the show, some of the people that have inspired me. And I kind of broke, for me, Kyle, I kind of broke my heroes or those people that I've admired into two separate camps. So one, the people in my life who have inspired me close up, you know, those role models who I've known personally, whether it be family, friends, or others. And you'll see what I mean by others shortly. And then the people, of course, who we've admired from afar, you know, essentially famous people in one way or another who have drawn our interest and maybe who we've been inspired to borrow or learn from in some regard. So, you know, and I thought that could kind of tie in with the nerd centric bend of our show, you know, that it could be those kind of be fun to listen to. So I kind of mixed it up between people I knew personally and people who I just, you know, inspired me at different points in my life, starting at a pretty young age. And I tried to keep everything below a certain age so it could be considered reflection and nostalgic and, you know, a, a, a bit a bit of reminiscing. So that's it. That's that's really where I'll, where I start. And I love this, too, because you and I, besides picking the topic, rarely we, we didn't speak about it at all beforehand. And we do that sometimes with topics. And those are always fun because it's it's interesting and it's conversational 
and I'll learn stuff and I'll get to ask questions of you. And I'm super excited now that you singled out five people who, you know, I'm kind of, I'm kind of guessing in my head who they could be. And we could just go back and forth. Hopefully we got some stuff from the audience that we could pepper in and just have a good time. Oh yeah. Lots of things from the audience. Lots of great inquiries from the audience. Some long ones as well. We'll get to all of those, sprinkle them in. I'm sure we're going to backfill as well because there's just so many ones that wouldn't fit in more linearly. So Dig, let's kick it over to you. It's your topic. Let's uh, start off with you. You're a young man, 70s, 80s, Dig and Moriarty. Okay, I'm going to go Who's inspiring you? Who do you want to begin with? Who do you want to begin with? I'm going to go back to very being very young. This is maybe my earliest one in some regard. And of course, you know who this is, Kyle, but I'm going to talk about our childhood pediatrician, Dr. Mario J. LaPera. Our, Interesting. Yeah. So this guy, when I think about, I rarely get to mention this and I rarely talk about it on the show or otherwise, but he had a huge impact on my life, Dr. LaPera. Now, first of all, you have to understand for those people listening out there, our pediatrician, you know, we, I grew up on, well, I was born in Western Long Island in Nassau County, which is the county bordering New York City. It's the county bordering Queens. So the westernmost part of the island. And when I was four and my sister, our sister Dana was two, I think, we moved, my mom and dad moved us out east to Suffolk County, about 40 miles east on the island, south, you know, near the South Shore. But we always kept our pediatrician who was in Garden City, Long Island and Nassau County, around where we where I lived until I was four. So we always made the pilgrimage out, you know, it was like a 45 minute drive to get to the pediatrician. So when any of us needed to go to the doctor, my mom made the trek out. And it, it was actually great because where I grew up in Albertson, where my mom grew up, I should say, in Albertson, where I was born as well in that whole area is where my grandma and grandpa lived. So every time we would go to the pediatrician, it would be also like a day at grandma's, dinner at grandma's house, possibly if it was towards the weekend, maybe a sleepover. So there was always that positive excitement of going to the pediatrician, but, and with grandma and grandpa always being tied in and the visiting and the dinners and hanging out and all that kind of stuff. Treats, of course, possibly trips to the toy store and all that stuff, but I digress. So, but Dr. LaPera was such an interesting guy because when I think back on him, he had, I'm a 46-year-old man, maybe one of the most calming demeanors of maybe anybody I've ever met. He just had a very soothing and gentle way about him. You know, his whole person could just put you right at ease. And I was always sort of enthralled with him. There was a great warmth about him. And he had this way that would just melt away any kind of anxiety. And I have to say, my parents, I talk about this sometimes on the show, my parents, our, our mom and dad, I think also had a very sort of, they, they weren't easily excitable. Anytime something went amiss or you got hurt or fell off your bike or whatever, they were very, they had a very calming nature. They didn't get excited. They didn't, sh- you know, they didn't let, let on that they were upset in any way. But he was like, the Dr. LaPera was like the pinnacle of this. And I remember going and visiting him and never being upset that I had to go to the doctor. It was always something that I never minded. And, you know, I was a very, I was a pretty anxious kid. I was a little bit of a worry wart. You know, I, I ca- kind of carried the weight of the world on my shoulders a little bit. I was a happy kid. I was passionate about the things I loved and I loved my family and all that kind of stuff. 
But I guess deep down, I was sort of like a warrior. You know, I was always worried about something and stuff like that. And he, Dr. LaPera, just had this really calming effect on me. He had this voice, a really soothing voice. He was soft-spoken, but clear, and just a little bit of that gravelly texture in there for good measure. I remember sitting down with him. Every time I would go in, I would you know, visit with him. I would sit up on the table. I would get my examination. Maybe I had to get booster shots, you know, immunization shots, whatever it was. I never minded. You know, it could be like he could give me 14 shots. I never cared. You know, he, his voice and his his demeanor and everything was just so calming. I, I would almost give him my other arm like, all right, you want to do like this arm now? Like, I'm totally cool with it. And then after the appointment, after I saw him and then everything was done, my mom, our mom, would sit in the office with him and have like a little briefing at the end. And I always remember him sitting behind the desk. He always had you know, a pair, I remember him so well. He had, a, he had glasses on. He always had a really distinctive cologne that he wore. And even like the smell of his office and the smell of him and everything was really just a calm, it had really just soothed me. And he always wore the white doctor coat and he's always dressed really nice. He always had a nice shirt on, nice slacks with a tie, really nice fashionable shoes. He was always dressed to a T, very classic. And I guess... I shouldn't. I should have asked mom this, but I, I'm. A, I'm assuming Doctor Lapera was at least had to be at least twenty years, mom and dad's, you know, twenty years senior to mom and dad. So maybe almost like grandma and grandpa's age, I would say. And he was just so elegant, and everything he did just made me feel so at ease. And he spoke to you like you were a kid, but he never spoke down. You know, there was no baby talk. He actually engaged you person to person, and just I remember you know, being so fond of him. He had a longtime nurse. Her name was Sandy, who was always with him. And he was always in the same building. As far as I remember, it was just like an institution. And it was just a, like a, such a big rolling part of my childhood from as early on as I can remember all the way through probably being in my middle teens. You know, he was a big part of my life. So as often as you would go for routine visits or maybe you were sick or whatever. He was, he was always there. He was a constant. And again, he just had that calm, that calming voice that could just calm a riot. You know, it was just like that type of, that type of personality. And I think really that type of personality really spoke to me because I didn't feel that type of inner calm as a kid. You know, I was always like, there was always something to think about. My mind was always moving too fast. I was worried about something. I was a little overly anxious and he just really took that and sort of, you know, placated it. He softened it. And I just want to give him a shout because I never get to talk about him. He was such an instrumental part of my growing up. And I always admired the way he was, like the way he acted. Like, how can I get a little bit of that as I got older? How can I get a little bit of that personality and that sort of calm demeanor into my life? How can I, how can I be a little more like, how can I be a little more like Dr. LaPera? And, you know, I ran into him, Kyle. I don't know if I ever told you this story. I was living in a few years after college. I was living back on Long Island. I was working in New York City. I was making the commute. And I was actually living at grandma's, grandma and grandpa's house for a little while. I lived there for like a year or a year and a half. And I was food shopping in a Wolbaum's one night. And here I, I look up and there's Dr. LaPera in the produce department, you know, choosing his apples. I'm on the other side choosing my oranges or whatever. And I went up to him and I wasn't sure... You know, now he's much older. I hadn't seen him in probably 10 years at that point. And I said, Dr. LaPera, you know, I'm, I'm David Moriarty. And it was just after 
9-11. He was like, oh, Dagan, how are you? It's very good to see you. And he immediately was like, how is your dad? Remembering that dad was a firefighter. And it was, you know, I guess this was a matter of months after 9-11. And I always thought that was so cool. All those years had elapsed. All those patients that I'm sure he had. And he remembered that smallest detail about our family that, and he, the other thing is he rarely saw dad. You know, it was always mom because mom was the stay-at-home mom. Dad was always working and he was always busy. So I thought that was always a, such a striking thing. It was, it was one of those things that thank God, because I had this guy on a pedestal my whole life that he remembered me because that could have been one of those cr- soul crushing things. Like, who the hell are you, kid? Type of thing. Who the? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Oh, Dan, Dan. How yeah, you that's doing? that's why you can't meet your heroes, even exactly. though you already had known them. <laughs> exactly. Dr. So, LaPera would have ruined your life. Uh, that would have crushed me. I don't know if I could have recovered from that. So it's funny, man, because I remember Dr. LaPera, like the whole act of going to Dr. LaPera's office so well, like you do. Just like the parking lot outside, the way it was situated against kind of like this grassy wooded area and then going into the building and taking the elevator up, obviously, and we've talked about this in the past because we make fun of Dana with her clowns thing, but he had like clowns all over the waiting room, I remember. Yeah, he did. And it's funny that you brought up the office because that's probably my most lasting memory of him is his big stately wooden desk. And the various books and all of that. And it just seemed very professional. And when you're a little kid, because I probably stopped seeing him when I was like eight or nine, probably when I moved to New England. So, right. That's right. I, so I was out at, at that age and I just so I do have a memory. But the, it's so funny also that you brought up two other things. Sandy, who is very memorable, the way her desk was situated behind this glass. But you can kind of walk around to a desk and talk to her behind the glass and I don't know I remember that I remember the whole layout of the of the room and then the the thing that you brought up that is so striking to me is the smell of the office I can smell it like I can I can picture it I want to smell it because I know it'll hit something in my mind's nose Absolutely. as it were so uh, that's a funny one to bring up Dr. LaPera good Italian boy and I think, you know what, Kyle? I think his, if yeah. I'm not mistaken, and mom may be able to speak better to this. That's why we have to do a show with her sometime soon. But I think his son, one of his children, if I'm not mistaken, took over the practice as well, which is actually oh. really nice to know that that legacy sort of continued on. Definitely the LaPera pediatric legacy. I was going to say, I wonder if he's still alive. Uh, he probably would be in his 90s now. I would think so, so. I would think so. Yeah. It's possible. Was he? No. Remind me. Did did Doctor LaPera smoke? Oh, you he know didn't what? smoke. That's a right? great. That's a great question. I think he might have. He might have. Like he, in the office, I feel like he might have smoked. He definitely might have. I told that funny story. I think on our grandparents' episode where my grandma was smoking right. in the elevator. Our grandma was smoking yeah, in the a, elevator of that building and burnt rules. my hand. Accidentally, air quotes. Accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a great question mom that's some a detail mom would certainly remember i remember the smell of the whole office the whole his whole area his office sandy's little nook and like the waiting room just like being mingled of like smelling really clean and fresh and also like mingled with the smell the telltale smell of his cologne whatever it was at the time so nostalgic so nostalgic and when i think about him even the colors 
for me, like even the colors that he were wear was wearing were like very late seventies, early eighties, like those earth tones and browns and grays and beiges and stuff. I would love to see like a more. Well, I did see him in the. I guess that was the very early aughts, but I would love to see like a more modern iteration of Doc Lepera because he was already, you know, that's really my most vivid memories of seeing him the most was probably over by the mid to late 80s. So that's really the Dr. LaPera I, I remember is so vintage, which makes it more, even more charming. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I totally hear you. It, it would be funny to, to learn a little bit more about, especially what mom and dad would, rem and, and particularly mom would remember. It's funny also, you're making me laugh just to myself about how you keep correcting yourself about saying like my grandma, my oh, yeah. mom. and. and <laughs> This is a really big I don't know if you know where I'm going to go with this, but this is a really big thing that we we kid around about in, in the Virginia sect of the family, because Aunt Car our Aunt Carla, Uncle Mike's wife, always says like my mom or like, you know, like whatever, like just <laughs> pretends that no one else is related to them. And then and then mom like says something and then Uncle Mike like makes fun of mom. And it's this whole thing. It's really funny that you uh you're correcting yourself because I always think about that. That's like, awesome. I, it, I don't think it really matters one way or the other. All right. <laughs> Dr. LaPera, off the list. Check. Drafted early. Check. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, so I'm going to go to mine. I said I'm going to be sentimental with this one in this uh, episode, and I'm going to be. I'm not even going to leave the family for this one, although I have others that I would talk about. I want to start with dad. Nice. And I'm sure that I'll throw it back to you and you'll have plenty to say. He's probably, I wouldn't be surprised if he's not on your list, but. And I wrote down some words. I, I just wrote down the people's names that I wanted to talk about today. And then I wrote down just words that came to mind. Just a few for each person. Nothing like crazy. And for dad, I wrote down hard work, perseverance, being a man and being an adult were the things that I think dad inspired me towards. Now, I, I do want to say, because this is another thing, especially because mom listens to the show so acutely, she's going to be like, well, I taught you hard work, too. Of course. Yeah. I'm not saying that anyone, anyone's, no one's precluded totally from having also inspired me. I'm just preempting this. Okay. We'll get to you, mom. We'll get to you. But uh, dad is, mm, let me back up and say this. I think that out of our whole family, the four siblings, especially the Moriarty siblings, the, the, per, the two people who were most indelibly affected by dad's workaholism were Dagan and I. And I think that's obvious if you know our family and the way Dagan and it's not to say our sisters don't work hard. It's just that Dagan and I are in the private sector. Our sisters are teachers, so they work hard in their own way, just like Dagan's wife. But sure, and sure. our brother-in-law, Dana's husband, is a principal of a middle school. So everyone's working hard. I'm not saying that again. I don't want anyone to get offended. No one's precluding you from working hard <laughs> as well. But but I think dad really nailed into me whether actively or passively just this idea that if you work if you want something then just go get it but don't come to me looking for it i'm not going to give it to you and that stuck with me from a very young age 
I think I've expressed on this show that I used to get a little annoyed. I still do, although no one really does it anymore about how spoiled I used to be when I was a kid compared to everyone else, like the other three siblings, which is just <laughs> bull- which is just total bullshit and like a total like false narrative. As I've said in the past, I'll trade my childhood for your guys childhood any day of the week. I wonder who like, I'm, I'm pretty sure I had it way worse, actually, in a lot of ways. But I never went to dad or mom, but I never went to dad and was like, I want this toy. Right. I have a very specific memory in 95 or 96 of wanting a TIE fighter during the Power of the Force re-release. And dad being like, all right, mow the lawn and we'd whack the lawn and do all this kind of stuff. We'll go to Toys R Us and get it. And uh, that's just the way it worked. And I, I feel like that kind of cadence from dad really affected me. And I think it affected me in a positive way. Just the idea of persevering, of working hard, of sacrificing. And I think dad will be the first person to say that he sacrificed too much, that the workaholism and the providing for the family went overboard. It cost him his marriage and all of that. But I think that it's a really positive trait, especially in and I'm from my perspective in a society that's starting to tell people that they don't need to work hard or that it doesn't matter if they work hard. Both of those things are lies, just total lies. And it doesn't mean that if you work hard, you're guaranteed success. It's what I always say to people is it's a math equation. Getting whatever you want is a math equation. Working hard is simply adding to the equation, making it more likely that you get what you want. There are no guarantees. And that's just the way life works. And I think that dad was a massive inspiration for me because I've always really worked hard. And I know that's a, a pat on the back kind of comment, and that's fine if people interpret, interpret it like that. But I've sacrificed a lot in my life to get where I am and to do what I do. And I really always look to the experience that dad gave me growing up. And even though we had arguments and butted heads and as we've discussed, like dad and I, when I was in high school, dad and I really didn't get along at all and wouldn't talk very much and just had a really rough relationship with each other in the late 90s, especially. And I only understood as I got older that a lot of the stuff that he was instilling in us, even stuff we make fun of him about, like the heat and all that kind of stuff, like <laughs> everything, came, everything came from a place of of trying to parlay some sort of adult experience into a child's mind and it's not something you're smart enough to know when you're a kid. And I think that dad in a lot of ways treated me like an adult more than anyone from a very young age. And sometimes it was really hard to deal with that, but it came out pretty well, uh, I think. And so, and, and I wanted to kind of double back on what I was saying earlier about being a man and being an adult. Dad is not a manly man. Like dad is a man, right? Like a strong buff, six foot three firefighter, but he's not like a manly man, right? He's not, He's not trying to like flex and do all. You know, he's not like that at all. Our dad, our dad's actually incredibly bohemian, probably more than anyone in our family. And that's always been a really appealing part of him because he's kind of like a contradiction in a lot of ways. But he did teach me what it was to be a man, to take care of business. To I have a really romantic vision in my mind of having a nuclear family, of having a stay at home wife and children and all of that. I don't know if that will happen for me. I think it, it times kind of passing by. And I want to be honest and say that if I don't, I'm not looking for a woman that will fit that role. It rather, I am happy to fill the role of provider for a woman I love. And I think that there's something really romantic and old school and nuclear about it. And that kind of, I kind of got that vibe from dad. And as far as being an adult, 
he was the guy that told me to go to work. I got a job when I was 14 years old. I remember him bringing me to McDonald's and I've made fun of myself in the past about this, but bringing me to McDonald's to, to apply. They never even called me back, which is so McDonald's didn't even want me. <laughs> and, you know, I, I got I got my first job at the uh, at the South Haven Stables. And when I was 16, I started working at a deli. And uh, when I was 17, I started landscaping and groundskeeping. And I always just had a job and I had a really blue collar job. So why it bothers me when some people and I got into a little bit of a tiff with someone on Twitter a few days ago about this, where I'm being like, you didn't you never worked a blue collar job. I'm like, first of all, I come from a blue collar background and I definitely did work blue collar jobs for like nine years. So it, it, it's something that came from dad about just being I remember expressing to him when I was a groundskeeper at Northeastern, like, oh, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of weird driving around in a golf cart, just emptying trash cans in front of the students and seeing your friends and kind of being embarrassed about it. But you, but I wasn't embarrassed because I just knew I was this is adulthood. This is how you make money. This is how it goes. And so dad was a massive inspiration for me in, the, in those ways to kind of structure my life, even though I didn't always want to listen to him. And even though I wish I did listen to him more. I did hear what he was saying. It was it was it's in my brain. It was it was passively imbued into me. And it helped make who I am today, which is I like working hard. I like persevering. I like trying new things and taking risks and taking responsibility and providing and all of that. And that comes I think that comes from dad. So and of course, my political upbringing and all of that, I mean, that's a totally separate thing. But I definitely got all of that from dad, too. So that's uh, what I wanted to say about our father. What do you think about that? Is he on your list? That's awesome. I mean, you know, the thing I have to say, Kyle, is, of you know, I have a list of people that I wrote here who are like my, of course, people, like, of course, the people who inspire me, continue to inspire me and who I construe as my heroes. But for me, I took the I took the arc with this show of taking the opportunity, hopefully to shout out some people who you guys haven't heard me talk about at length yet, you know, hopefully share some stories I haven't make you laugh. Here's some stories that I haven't shared yet and all that kind of stuff. But dad is certainly one of those driving forces in my life. I love everything you said about that because he really did instill with his children the value of work and working hard. But the other thing is he never pushed in any specific direction or applied any pressure to follow after his footsteps or even make suggestions. And there's so much wisdom in that, I think, especially for mom and dad's generation where you try to instill those things of the value of hard work, working hard, making a life for yourself, choosing your passion. They always said, just follow your passion. It doesn't matter what that is. It literally doesn't matter what you want to go after or what you want to pursue. Just do choose something and do it and do it to the best of your ability. And I think a big part of my foundation was a blending of dad sort of his work ethic, seeing his work ethic from all the way from being a little kid and seeing how hard he worked, not only at his day job as a firefighter, but all the side jobs that he juggled just in order to make more money, to give us a little more stuff, you know, build a pool in the backyard or go on vacations, Disney, whatever it was, why they were doing it, why he always did a little bit extra, why he drove the truck, why he did the carpentry jobs and how much you know, he really, how much value he put into hard work and providing for his family. But also in that, the fact of recognizing from a very early age that he was the best at what he did. You know, he was considered one of the best firefighters. He was considered by fellow firefighters, the guy you wanted to go into the burning building with because he was such a, he was such the consummate professional at his job. He was fearless. He was 
you know, I, I say heroic with some bias, but you know, he was heroic. He was strong. He was knowledgeable. He knew what to do in situations. He didn't panic. He was thoughtful. So, and I loved that. Like I always admired him for that. And I, he was always my hero for that. And I think he sort of instilled in me that work ethic of like, I could say like, I know Colin feels the same way as I do. Like if you're not doing a job to the best of your ability, then how do you even sleep at night? Like that's really how I, I don't even articulate that in my own head on a day-to-day basis, but I think if I really get introspective and, and examine how I feel about it, that's exactly how I come down on it. It's like, if you're not giving 110%, then how do you even, how do you even live with yourself? And it's not always about being the best. A lot of times if you have that sort of tenacity and you work that hard and you're that dedicated, you're going to be the best. But it's not about being the best. It's just about doing your best, if that makes sense. So, And he, sure. he was definitely the guy that instilled that in me. And then the other part of it for me was grandpa always telling me, don't waste your talent. And from such an early age that I wasn't even sure what that meant at first. But what he was saying is, Whatever God-given gifts you're given, embrace them because he was always the frustrated artist and the cartoonist that never really pursued it. And I think there was a big part of Grandpa that we talked about that in the grandpa on the grandparents episode that, you know, Grandpa really regretted that. I think there were some parts of him that sort of lamented the fact that he didn't pursue art for a living and he could have. So him always instilling that and mom and dad on the other side instilling the work ethic, especially dad. And just always really admiring him for that and always and never hearing him complain about any of it either. Never, never complaining, just, you know, was and now as an adult, you could look back and like he sacrificed a lot. You know, he's not a man who drove a luxury car back in the day. He's not a man who golfed on the weekends like a lot of our friends' dads did. He didn't, you know, he wasn't constantly him and mom went on some vacations and they, you know, completely deserved that, of course. But he didn't do a lot for himself. He operated at great sacrifice. That work ethic was always a big part of, I feel like, my underlying foundation. And yeah, that's, I mean, that's, that can't be oversaid. I mean, it, to this day, he's, and he, he'll he tell me, like, I'm so proud, like, I'm so proud of you. Like, you know, what you do, what you have to do for your family and you're dedicated and you don't give up. And I know animation's hard and it's contract per contract. And he's been my biggest cheering section and that's the thing too it's like you would think a lot of the times a dad like that we don't come from a family business type of background but a lot of parents traditionally especially of their generation would come down and be like you should do you know there's part of me that says you should do what i do you know look i found success doing this so you should do that there was never any of that it was always like you find your own path and, you know, maybe that does play into sort of dad's unique nature of being, uh, like Colin said, a manly man and also being sort of of that bohemian attitude and having those, you know, having those sort of philosophies that he embraced. It's like mom and dad were hippies. Maybe they held on to a lot of that, you know, a lot of those sentiments, a lot of those values. <laughs> yeah, it's, I think I only think that a, a, a laid back atmosphere, regardless of how we describe some aspects of our childhood, but a more laid back approach by our parents about professionalism and what we would want to do when we're older is the only way you spawn two sons that do what we do for a living. I don't think it could really happen any other way, you know, it's a great uh, point. to just say, like, we have two sons that just really just did really random shit to get where they are. And it, it somehow worked and they never really 
can't speak for you, but I think it's true. They never really tried to dissuade me from it. So no, no. They even if they felt so differently cool. about it, I don't think they always felt great about it, but they never tried to dissuade me from doing what I was doing, you know. And it worked out. It means a lot. It does. All right, Dick, I kick it back over to you to continue our conversation. All right, my friend. You know, I'm going to talk about a guy who inspired me, a hero that I admired from afar and that I didn't know personally, of course. And that is a lot of you guys know how big skateboarding was with me, especially when I was younger, when I was a kid. And how that really defined me as a person and really, really meant the world to me. I was super, something that I was super passionate about. Certainly the physical activity, the outdoors activity, the non-nerdy activity that I embraced the most over the course of my life. And I first started skateboarding in 1987. And when I first kind of came on the scene, there was, you know, we talk about that era it was ramp skating, you know, vertical skating, and it was very California centric. And a lot of these guys were already older, established, established pros. And a lot of you guys know who these people are. But talk about, for instance, when I came on the scene, the Bones Brigade was still a big thing. Tony Hawk, Steve Caballero, Lance Mountain, Tommy Guerrero, Mike McGill, those guys were the guys doing it at the highest professional level. You know, other guys like Christian Hosoy and stuff like that where they were vertical skaters, they were all from California, they were all doing it out there. And it was kind of like admiring something from afar. It was almost like kind of admiring a circus act because we didn't really have access necessarily to big ramps like that. We didn't have access to a really sort of um, immersive skateboard culture at that point on the East Coast and the Northeast of the United States. It hadn't really uh, fully saturated yet. So it was almost like watching something from afar that you half couldn't relate to. And if you think about guys like Tony Hawk and his ilk, they they had a very Ninja Turtles-esque sort of appeal where you would kind of pick the guy you liked the most and they each had a really different and unique style and aesthetic and trick selection and specialty. So you would say, oh, I like Tony Hawk because he's, he's the tactical that guy that flips his board around on the ramps. Or I like Mike McGill because... He invented the McTwist or I like Lance because he goes big and does the most lip tricks or whatever. And he has this kind of style and this Christian Hosoy is really flashy and he's got the shirt and he's got the bandanas and the shirt trail behind him. And he's he's always skating topless and he's got that sort of whole Vato like vibe going on and all that kind of stuff, which is really cool. But it was almost like choosing your favorite Ninja Turtle. And it was guys doing things on a skateboard. Yes, we had skateboards and stuff like that, but we were doing it in the street. In the on the east coast in the suburbs and it, there was kind of like you know there was that sort of line of demarcation where it was like these guys are doing something different like we have our little skateboard but they're doing something that seems very foreign almost and also the guys that we were admiring in the magazines and whatever early vhs videos we had at that point were a little older they just felt like there was some sort of separation and when the late 80s started to roll around and when street skating started to really take hold and it started to infiltrate outside of California and it started to become immersive around the globe and make its way out to the East Coast of the United States, we had guys that were closer to our age that were doing it in the videos. They were doing, you know, they were skating now in the suburbs and places that we would recognize and, you know, skating on flat ground and curbs and parking blocks and hucking themselves downstairs and handrails. And it was a setting and environment that was more familiar to us. 
and a style of skateboarding that was more familiar to us and just guys that looked more like we looked. They were more our age. They sort of started to envelop a little bit of a more hip hop fashion and sort of incorporate those things into wearing public enemy t-shirts and all that kind of stuff. It just felt more relatable. And Ray Barbie was the first guy who I really, if I'm really being introspective, was the first skateboarder who I really wanted to emulate. I really wanted to be like, and I really felt like I related to. And he's notable for a lot of reasons. He's still skateboarding. It turns out he's a couple years older than me. He was born in 71 and he is from California. He's from San Jose, hails from San Jose. But when Ray Barbie came on the scene, it was like, oh shit, like that's the kind of skateboarding I want to do. Not only was he skillful and super talented, he was also one of the first black African-American street skateboarders who was really notable. And he would go on to set trends for many minority skateboarders that came later that we adored of all races and all creeds, but guys that would come later like Kareem Campbell and really influential skateboarders. But he was really the first one. And we, you know, it's, we weren't even looking at him for being black or white or Asian. He just ripped. He had great style. And the cool thing is I, I could sit here and I wrote in my notebook, a bunch of names of pro- professional skateboarders that inspired me through the years, whether they were just enormously talented or had amazing style, or had great staying power over the years. They they managed to stay relevant in a sport that was very beholden to be, being trendy and becoming cyclical over the years. I think skateboarding is here to stay now, but I think it took a long time to get there. And I certainly, you know, me and PJ and our generations went through that where skateboarding would have its highs and lows and ebbed and flowed. And, you know, we kind of always stayed through it those guys that kind of st- stuck around and stayed relevant and stayed sort of on the cutting edge. But Ray Barbie was different because not only was he cutting edge with his trick selection and ushering in new tricks and a new style of skateboarding and just being on the cusp of that generation coming in and changing skateboarding and ushering out the Tony Hawks and his generation and sort of changing the whole bent of skateboarding and introducing it to the suburbs and the streets and taking it off the ramps and making it more accessible to the every kid. But he, Ray Barbie was also extremely humble about it. You know, we grew up in the 90s. When the 80s turned to the 90s, there was a huge vibe and attitude with skateboarding. And I was a big part of that. You know, I was a heady kid where it was like very clicky. It was very judgmental. We went through the whole throes of that, especially in the 90s where skateboarding, you know, skateboarding was construed as unpleasant because a lot of the attitude was unpleasant, you know, and not that I didn't know positive, more positive people and stuff like that. And I tried to stay positive. But you go through that where you think what you do is the best and you feel like you're going through those rebellious teenage years where you feel like people don't understand anyway and there's a little bit of a chip on our shoulder. Ray Barbie never had any of that. He always seemed very, very humble. And he always seemed to take great joy and passion in what he was doing. And you could tell even when you were watching him rip on a video that he was having fun. And that's something that, that's why I chose to talk about him today in, you know, as far as the realm of professional skateboarder that inspired me and who I always admired all the way to this day because his attitude and his friendliness and his openness and his humility and just the fact of how much he loved skateboarding and had a good time doing it. And there was never any of that Hollywood shit with Ray. You know, there was never any of that, like, I'm the best, I'm going to sit down at the demo, like not going to sign this kid's board. Like he always embraced being who he was. 
And I think he would be one of those guys who told you like, I'm, I'm, I'm even uncomfortable with being sort of seen that way. I don't want to be seen in that light. I'm just like you. I'm, I just want to skateboard. You know, that, that humility is really authentic. And I think he had a huge impact on who I wanted to be, not only as a skateboarder on my board, emulating the tricks he did and the style and how fast he went and how he always was a nice combination of going big and tech and all that kind of stuff, but also just the way he carried himself, his demeanor, the fact that he was friendly and the fact that he didn't let that pro thing go to his head. When I when we first started getting into him and he had his first pro board, Ray Barbie was on the scene and we loved him already and he was still amateur. Back then, it was a little different. You know, kids didn't start skateboarding and go pro in four years. You know, Ray Barbie was skating for eight, nine years before he was even a sponsored amateur. And we were already admiring him before he had his first pro model. And his pro, his, his pro model, by the way, his first pro model graphic is one of those legendary graphics in all of skateboarding. And, you know, he just had a huge impact on my life beyond skateboarding, just who I wanted to be. He's also, he's also a musician a great guitar player, which I always admired that that's far from my talent base, but also very artsy, very into art and very much on the cutting edge of talking about sort of being an ambassador for skateboarding to younger kids coming in on how and how you can be, you know, you don't have to have the attitude. You don't have to do, you know, unfortunately, a lot of skateboarders come from broken homes, right? So the drinking and the drugs and the lifestyle that comes with skateboarding, especially in the pro ranks, and how that could be a very rock star lifestyle and how he is sort of the antithesis of that, but not in a corny way, you know, because you can't question his influence and the impact he had on skateboarding and how great he is at skateboarding. So he was always such a positive for skateboarding. And that's why I really wanted to give him a shout. And, you know, the fact that his enormous influence on skateboarding is something that I always felt. And I was just watching interviews with him last night, just in writing a couple of notes, jotting a couple of notes down. And he's still the same dude. Like he's still skateboarding. He's still, he's a big, he's a heavy with Vans, which is great. I think Vans is probably his primary source of income. You know, they embraced him from a very early age and stuck with him, even through kids coming up through the ranks now. And of course, Ray Barbie getting older, he must be 48 years old now. And the fact that he's still doing it. He seems like the same person as when I first saw him when he was 17. And the first video I saw of him, I think that was Powell Peralta Public Domain, where he had his first, like, he shared a video part and how how much he stood out. And now he's still the same dude. It's interesting that, you know, I've been thinking about you a lot lately, actually, because I've been playing Tony Hawk. And it reminds me of you and me playing the original one together. But it's so funny, and I think really quite endearing that Skating has been such an important part of your life, whether literally in the act, you're kind of getting old now. So I'm sure you can't really get out there on the on the deck too much. Like it's, you used to it's anymore, harder. But, it's definitely harder. But that it remains a part of like your essence. I feel the same way about hockey uh, for me where and I kind of recapture that by skating around a lot lately and or more recently and all that. And I've always been a viewer, obviously, of the game, but haven't played it in a league in many years. But it, it just kind of remains a, a part of who you are. So it's always nice to hear those stories and i actually still think that one of my favorite episodes of knockback is one we did a long time ago about our favorite uh or what was it i'm sorry not our favorite it was about your your skate you're coming up as a skater and your sure. favorite memories from that was from fun. that so that was fun i really enjoyed that episode thank you Mike. all right dig well i did mo- dad so now i'm gonna do mom <laughs> she's next See, i told you mom i get See, to mom you. you got it 
Now, what I wrote to what I wrote for for mom is kindness, decency, forgiveness, patience, and generosity. Again, other people taught me those things as well, but our mom's a pretty gentle soul. It doesn't mean that she doesn't have a a hurricane inside her like many people do if they're, you know, pushed the wrong way. But I think mom taught me a lot about decency, just a lot about being human, about doing the right thing, about being kind to people. I've often reflected that one of the things I one of the few things that makes me sad about my more public persona, as it were, or the way that some people gauge me is that I'm like, I am brash, but that I'm like rude or, cra- you know, whatever the case might be. And that's just not who I am at all. I don't think anyone that really knows me would ever say that about me. I think the exact opposite. I remember Ali saying to me a couple of years ago that I'm overly polite <laughs> in like public situations. Like, I just don't like conflict and I don't like I don't I, I, it's like the exact opposite of the way some people in, interpret me for some reason. But I think a lot of this comes from mom. I think that she is just a kind soul, a decent soul. I just hung out with her a few days ago and there's just something about her. Some She's got some sort of gravitas about her in terms of you want to tell her your problems. You want to listen to her wisdom. And she's just got, obviously I think a lot of people feel this way about their mothers, but she's just got a motherliness to her where you just feel comfortable. You feel at ease. Uh, any anxiety washes away, whatever is bothering you washes away. And so I just wanted to give a shout out to mom for being a major inspiration for me and also someone that I experienced a lot of different things with and that in some ways I took for granted, especially when I was in college and she worked in Northeastern. And so I was able to see her all the time. And I kind of took that whole thing for granted. And it's too bad. And that's why I'm so glad that I'm I'm in Virginia now after 13 years in California, because I can be around mom again. And um, even though she's getting older, she just turned 70 last week from when we're recording this. She's still cruising along and still doing her thing. And so it's just a real pleasure for me to be around her. And and she was a great inspiration that balanced out a lot of um, my sharper edges with whatever kind of lesson she was trying to teach me about patience or being generous or forgiving someone or moving on. And she it's it's interesting because I have a relationship with her where I really would t- and I, I have told her anything, including really deep secrets that no one knows about, you know, or that only the people involved would know about something or whatever. She's just someone I trust and sure seek counsel from even at I'm 35, you know, even at this age, it, it doesn't really change. And in fact, a lot of her counsel is uh, well received. You know, she's a ball buster still, and she was over here. She was over here the other day and just tell them, you know, this all the wood chipped here and don't leave the door open because the water is getting it's just like, all right, mom. But at the same time, it's <laughs> it's uh, it's always nice to, to be around her. And she's just got a generous and decent spirit about her. And I feel like that's contagious. And I feel like a lot of us owe in our family. Uh, well, we all kind of owe her a great gratitude not only for bringing us up but also just for kind of instilling that in us because when you think back about some of the friends you might have had when you were a kid and i knew a lot of moms obviously and some of them are great and some of them sucked some of them are really bad abusive or detached or disassociated or absent whatever the case might be and so i think that what we talked about dad and we're talking about mom now it's i think we're lucky that we kind of got two decent people to be our parents. It's it's really just math. You, you don't really know who you're going to be born to or where you come out or how you come out. And so 
Uh, I got to give a shout out, a hearty shout out to mom for her kindness, decency, forgiveness, patience and generosity. And that's all that she instilled in me. She's the what best. Do you think? She's the best. I mean, you know, you know what the most touching thing about me when I think about mom is that she's one of the people, obviously, I know the longest. She's one of the people that holds one of the largest spots in my memory. I have so many memories of her growing up with her. And then it's really authentically true that she, her nature, who she is, her personality, her values, she hasn't changed at all. She's always been the same person, nurturing. You know, she was really energetic, especially as a young mom. I know she's older now, but that's what I always think about now is her energy. You know, how, how energetic she was with toting kids around and looking after kids and being that stay-at-home mom where dad worked a lot. And that truly caring and sweet nature, yeah, and that trustworthiness, the, the best secret keeper. You know, for me, Kyle, one of the easiest people for me to get along with, especially, you know, being an adult, you know, not having that sort of static when you're growing up in the same house as a teenager and stuff. And I'm not sure mom and I really had that much of that. We always had a, we always had a really nice friendship. But that's who she's, when I think of mom, it's like one of the easiest people for me personally to get along with. There's an inherent understanding of each other between me and mom. And maybe that's down to just a matter of our moms knowing us best. I don't know what it is, but there's just a real inherent understanding between me and mom and, and, and a rhythm and a dialogue. And I, you know, I, I have to say, man, I have to cop to really being, really envying you right now for being down there and being close to her because she's really the person in my life who I miss one of the most, you know, I miss everybody that's down in Virginia. I miss dad very much. He's still in on Long Island, of course, but I really miss mom. I really miss, she's one of the people who I love sitting down with in person, talking, catching up, you know, just having sort of having a conversation, talking about whatever I could talk about, whatever with her, just really being with her and, you know, sort of our history together. It's like, almost like, my history with dad, Dana certainly falls into this category where it's like, these are the people that you go the furthest back with, you know, that you have the most history since, with since you've been born. You've spent the most time together. You came up, th those pivotal pivotal moments in your life, especially as kids, you know, you spend those time together. So, you know, you kind of just miss that connection. For me, it's just like I, talking to her on the phone is great. She's one of the few people I, I, I could talk to on the phone for hours. One of the very few people I could talk to. But, you know, just the fact that she hasn't, she's still our biggest fan, still the loudest person in our cheering section. I'm not just talking about me and you, Kyle. I'm talking about her kids in general. And now, of course, her grandkids. And just her, what's important to her, what is, you know, comes down to her values, her family being of paramount importance. That really, the nature of our family has changed. You know, we're in different, you know, mom and dad got divorced when I was 17 it sort of broke down and altered and evolved since then. The nature of where we are, the dynamic of our physical locations is different as people in Virginia, people in Pennsylvania, people in New York. But that constant with, with our sort of value on family, I think we really got that from mom. And I think we really got that from mom's side of the family where it's like we have Aunt Carla and Uncle Mike and Aunt Joni and Uncle John and of course grandma and grandpa who we miss very much and mom. They're really the ones that instilled that. You know, they're really the side of the family that really brought that to light. It was like, this is family. This is who you spend your time with. This is who you have dinner, Sunday dinner with. This is who you see week in and week out. 
this is who you would do anything for. You always have each other's backs and all that kind of stuff. That all comes down to me from mom. And it's so it's so striking to me that you I think about every aspect of who she is. And she really has not changed. You know, she's you, you when you get older, I feel the same way. You know, I feel like, God, I, I miss a couple of steps from when I'm 20. You get a little bit of that. You have a little bit less energy or a little more tired, but she on underneath it all, she's still the same person, same sense of humor, silly. You know, she's got that lighthearted side to her. She can make you laugh. She's quick to laugh. She likes to laugh. And I think that, you know, that, that plays into, I think really she's what probably has the single most impact on who or how I wanted my personality to develop as, you know, from being a kid, really admiring how she was, how patient she was, how quick to laugh she was how how silly she was how (laughs) we always laugh because mom and dad have that burton ernie dynamic where dad was kind of serious maybe a little more gruff and mom was kind of lighthearted and silly and maybe kind of busting balls a little bit like ernie she's such she's such an ernie you know and she hasn't really changed we have a letter here from patreon from demetrius newell he says hey colin and tegan this may sound cliche But my mother was always the most inspirational person in my life, raising my brother and me as a single mother while we also working full time as an enlisted military member. Then a correctional officer at a local prison showed me immense empowerment. Wow. She was able to provide for us single handedly. And though I didn't follow her footsteps completely, she has always had a large impact on my life. So I think throwing a shout out to people's moms, probably not that controversial. Lots of people feel the same way, but absolutely. Yeah, there's no there's no doubt. I mean, there's just no doubt that 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 intellectual and spiritual and mental nourishment you get from a mother is uh, unrivaled in a lot of ways. So I'm, I'm happy to be here too. I'm really thrilled to not be in California anymore. No offense, <laughs> man. I left at the right time for any number of reasons. I think about that weekly with you. I'm like, wow, he really got while the getting was good, man. My timing has just been impeccable lately. I can't be <laughs> knock on wood. Dig, I throw it over to you. Continue All right. Our conversation. You know what? I want to shout out a friend. We did our friend episode not too long ago, and I talk about my most, some of my most cherished friends through the years, all of who I still, I still consider very dear friends. But I have to talk about one friend I don't get the opportunity to talk about too often on the show, and that's my friend Joe, who is an animation buddy of mine. I met him at my very first animation job 21 years ago. And ironically, we work together at Sesame right now. We both work from home remotely. We're both animators. And we've gone through the industry, mostly on the East Coast together, through the years working, going in and out of working in the same places. Sometimes we work the same places. Sometimes we don't. There's, a, there's been a couple of chapters where we both freelanced for the same West Coast animation studio, which was kind of ironic. Animation's a pretty incestual, close-knit, you know, if I don't know you, I know your best friend type of community there's not that many 2d animators working in north america actually so it's not that odd but we've always stayed connected through what we do for a living but i thought it would be a funny story to tell you how i met joe and tell you what kind of person he is colin may know this story joe's been a dear friend of mine for a long time he was in my wedding party so he's no stranger to my family although i don't see him on a personal basis where i get to visit with him and his family and stuff like that anymore because He's up in North Jersey. I'm down here. COVID, all that kind of crap. But Joe's always meant a lot to me. He's a very talented animator, but as a person, he's 
<laughs> and, the, and our inauspicious beginnings, I think you guys will be entertained by this. So I graduated from the Art Institute in Philadelphia in 1998, and I had a couple of different options going on. Disney Imagineering, which is like their theme park development division, had expressed some interest in me. Some women had, some women had found me. Two women that were like recruiters for Imagineering found me and sort of were courting me a little bit for, for Disney, and it fell through. It actually fell through. They went with somebody else in the zero hour or whatever. I didn't make it to the last round. So my hopes were kind of dashed and I was feeling shitty. There was a recruitment fair at school. I had just graduated and I went and this animation studio up in Connecticut was representing there called Funny Bone Interactive. And they had this really cartoony dog for their mascot on their logo and it looked interesting. And it turned out this place did animation for, at that time, remember it's the late 90s now, internet still being ushered in, gaming consoles, all that, but 3D is still big, but CD-ROMs were still a big thing in the mid to late 90s. So this particular studio up in Connecticut, outside of Hartford in the suburbs, did animation for CD-ROM games, you know, children's CD-ROM games. I believed at the time I applied, they were owned by Knowledge Adventure. So it was like a smaller little, Knowledge Adventure was the umbrella company. Maybe there was a giant media company encompassing all of it. And then through the throes of me being there, I was only there for a year and a half. They got, oh, I think they got bought out by Vivendi Universal, which is like a European a European media, media company. So they went through the throes of ownership and stuff, but it was a really interesting place because it was in the suburbs of New England. The animation studio was in this sort of converted strip mall. So it had like a campus with like five or six different buildings. The human resources building was like this Victorian house. It was really cool. It was very New England. It's really beautiful up there in the suburbs of Hartford. I still get nostalgic about it. So I get up there. It's a giant operation. There's like 150 to 200 people working there. Everybody's working on, you know, we had huge clients, Fisher Price, Nickelodeon, Cartoon Network, doing traditional hand-drawn animation for CD-ROM games. And they had this really sort of, at that time, I felt was kind of an advanced pipeline where they had the animators would draw on paper, flipping the pages, just like you see. Then it would go to a traditional inker who would ink the drawings comic book style. Then it would go to a digital ink and paint department to get composited. And the whole pipeline was very Disney feature-esque for, you know, the quality was a little less, but there was some really talented people working there. I met a lot of great friends that I'm still friends with today. And Joe was working there. So I started as an animator at this place. And Joe, unbeknownst to me, was on the other side. We were in a, a building of animators and it was divided into kind of cubicles traditional office setting. Joe was a cubicle or two away from me. I hadn't really met him yet. I was starting to meet people. It was my first week. Maybe it was just into my second week. And my producer came to me. I was animating something, flipping the drawings. My producer, I remember this girl, Jackie, came to me with a stack, a Bible thick stack of drawings, you know, on animation paper, pencil drawings. And we're like, oh, and they were inked. They were actually inked. So they came up from the ink department and she was like, this inking... I need you to do me a favor. This inking is really sloppy. They would ink a fat holding line around 
the around the sort of the, around the outlines of the characters. They that was the style at the time in the late '90s. It was like a fat line around the borders, and that also helped apparently for a digital ink and paint for scanning and compositing. So, you know, the digital ink and paint people essentially could just click and fill. So she's like, these these fat outlines are really sloppy. I need you to go in there and sort of meticulously fix them up, you know, sort of polish them up and do what you can with it. And it was like this fat, this fat stack of drawings. I think I was already frustrated with what I was animating. And I started pissing and moaning. You know, I was like, oh, come on. Like, why can't it go back to ink? Like, this is who I was, by the way, in my early 20s. I was like, you know, I thought I was John K. Come, come down from on high. Like, it's, it's literally my second week there. I'm like, how dare you bother me with, I was just like in a, a grouchy mood. And I started being very verbal about how bad this inking was, right? So here comes Joe. I don't even know him yet. He comes around. The th- I'm like, who did this? Blah, blah, blah. I got it. This is going to take me three days to fix this crap up. Like, this person shouldn't be inking. Like, I'm just really being grouchy and opinionated and loud and obnoxious. And here comes Joe around the corner looking very sweet. And he's like, dude, I, I did those. I'm so sorry, blah, blah, blah. Now, Granted, if if I was in Joe's position and I heard some dickhead new guy complaining, I definitely would have handled it. I definitely would not have handled it like Joe. But from that moment on, we became fast friends. And he just, its I still laugh about it. Like the fact that he embraced me as a friend and kind of saw through my dicky little tirade to actually sort of offer his hand, know I'm new, sort of become friends, go out for drinks. We became like, you know, me, Gene, Dan and Joe were like the posse at that place, right? We were best friends and that was how we met. Was me complaining like a dickhead about his work and how he just he just brushed that aside and was like, "Dude, nice to meet you. I want to help you. I'm sorry that I did such a shitty job." And that just speaks to me about Joe. Even though he's not one of the friends I remain, he's a colleague and it's so cool to have someone go through your career, you know, that you could go through your career with like I've gone through with Joe. But he, it's so crazy to have that personality. And that's exactly who he was. There was no negativity. There's no shit talking. He's just a really genuinely nice person and warm person. And like the fact that we could get off to a start like that and him not even be offended by it is just something I always wanted to incorporate, try to incorporate more into my personality. Where, you know, I could lose patience or I could get heated or if someone was talking shit, I definitely would have took taken, I would have taken exception to that. So it really, and that's authentically, genuinely who Joe is. You know, he, I never heard him say a bad thing about anybody. He's very diplomatic. He's very sweet natured, very good natured person. Maybe more so than any other friend that I've ever had. And there was always a little bit of something in our first meeting that I look back on and laugh and sort of shake my head at myself at, because I'm like, wow, the fact that somebody could even look past that and see something, maybe see something in you or just give you a shot, regardless of how you're acting. I don't know if I've ever experienced something like that again. And I was probably like 23, 24 when that happened. I think Joe is is a year younger than me. So he was just slightly younger and how we you know, kind of founded and formed this fast friendship based on that initial meeting is just, it still blows my mind 21 years later. And he hasn't changed at all. He's got, same as me, two kids, house, wife, responsibilities, 
still working in this crazy industry and we got we get older you know we're definitely not as young as we used to be playing pickup basketball games up in new england after work and hitting the bars on the weekends and all that kind of stuff but he's still the same person and i just want to give him a shout because even though outside of work we don't get a chance to hang and talk like we used to especially now with both working remotely and both working so busy and working 60 hour work weeks animating on the same projects but he he means a lot to me. And the fact that he gave me a chance when, you know, again, this happened when I had no friends. I was brand new up there. I was just starting to meet people. And he was one of the people that really took me under his wing. And, you know, the same thing. He's a, he's a North Jersey boy, very similar to Long Island, Italian. He went to Joe Kubert school up there. So he went to school on the East Coast for comic book uh, illustration and animation. Very like-minded in, in a lot of ways, both similar Italian backgrounds and families but he's just one of those great people and i very rarely get the opportunity to talk about joe so that's just a shout out to to my boy joe right on yeah joe's a great guy and we have uh a message here from ironically clark petrie who was one of our rappers today so he's getting double exposure today relax clark don't get a big head He says, hello, brothers. M. when it comes to childhood inspirations, the first person that came to my mind was my friend Justin. We were both tech nerd kids in a very rural country town. He just had more aptitude for it than me. And that was the inspiring thing. His HTML was better. He knew basic and I didn't. His IRC bots were more sophisticated. He helped me install my first RAM module so I could play Doom 2. In retrospect, it was fortuitous having my inspiration be so close, literally my neighbor, because I was constantly inspired. In other words, it was just tangible. Even now, I'm inspired by the success he's found in Silicon Valley. Much love to my friend Justin for all he did without even knowing it. Very good. Thank you, Clark, for writing in again. (laughs) Appreciate that. All right, Dag. Well, I'm going to move on to Dagan, who's next on my list here. Getting to my siblings here a little bit. What I wrote for Dagan was fun, camaraderie, nerddom, toil, creativity, and exposure. And I think Dagan has the most linear line, I would say, between who I would become professionally and the various or some of the passions that I hold and himself. And I've often said that I I don't know that it's very common to have a brother that's like 11 years older than you, but for him to be very engaged with you nonetheless, I think that. That kind of age dis- uh, difference would naturally preclude, I think, most boys from really having an association with their toddler, you know, infant or toddler brother. And then as he's growing up, but Dagan was quite different than that. I don't know exactly why, other than that Dagan, that we're siblings, obviously, but Dagan also just very good natured. I think we were brought up to kind of love each other um, in that way, which is why I wrote down camaraderie. And, but Dagan, the thing about you, Dagan, and I, I think it can't be understated because we've often talked about the evolution of nerddom and how people take all of that in now and kind of the way you used to go to like holiday Inn or whatever to get like comics every week and or every yeah. month with your friend yeah. and all that. Like it was just, it was a different kind of time, but the, what was funny about you was that you kind of always just wore that on your sleeve anyway. Like you were just a nerd you were, and this was before it was at all really acceptable to be that way. It's not, it, it didn't dictate Dagan's life he wasn't like a dork and unpopular and all those kinds of things but he just was in the anime he was in the cartoons and video games and 
when it comes down to it, I was just really exposed to it, which is why I wrote down exposure. I was just really exposed to a lot of this stuff at a very young age. When you're five years old or six years old and there's anime on TV all the time, like legitimately just anime, not even dubbed or anything like that, sometimes not even translated with subs, you kind of just feel like it's normal. Oh, there's Ranma Half. Oh, there's Bubblegum Crisis. Oh, it's like, but no one was watching. No one knew what the fuck this stuff was. And it's kind of, it's like, a, it's kind of like a sacred thing to me because I really do have those very deep, nerdy roots. And I've often said to people that the unfortunate thing about video games, I think, because they are so time consuming, is that just getting further away from the origin of them naturally means that you're going to become less and less familiar with what it really was like, what it was really like then. You can go play Super Mario Brothers, but you weren't really around playing it in the 80s or even in the 90s on Super Mario All-Stars or whatever. Or, you know, I remember when the SNES launched and I remember getting all Street Fighter 2 and all these kinds of things. And a lot of this happened through Dagon. So it's not like something I have to read about or I don't have to watch like a documentary or just play a game and you're kind of removed from it. Like, I really get it because I was there and I was there in a much greater way at such a young age than I should have been because of the influence of my brother. And when you think about the things that I bring up, like G.I. Joe or uh, Nintendo and Mario and Castlevania and Mega Man and Kid Icarus and all these kinds of things, I mean, this all comes from Dagon. And so without that influence, even if you were into those things, but not as open with it with me, it really does make me wonder, like, what would have happened to me? What what would have called me? Because when I really think about the things that I liked, like everything was what you liked. And I don't know if that was because you were my brother and I wanted to be like you. I'm sure a lot of that had to do with it. But I think a lot of it was just like, especially in the analog days that we grew up in in the 80s. This is what we had. I mean, if you had some shitty Ronma half tape. From Holiday Inn, that's what you had. If you had some rental SNES game or your brother might have traded, let's say, Kid Icarus for pilot wings or something like that in one of the most disastrous trades of all time or whatever you got rid of to get pilot wings. <laughs> Fucking horrible game. That's what you that's what you had, right? Like and so me not having the ability to discover these things on my own in any way, it just kind I just kind of became a shadow of that. And I have a lot of great memories about those things. A lot of we've gone over a lot of these memories, but just a lot of funny memories. Of like throwing ninja stars at the fence, like real ninja stars, <laughs> like throwing throwing them at the fence. They got them in Chinatown somewhere. I'm like six or seven years old, like literally just oh, throwing ninja God. stars. Remember that, like it was you yesterday. know, or or th- whatever the case might be. Watching Dragon, the Dragon Quest or Dragon Warrior anime, and just getting exposed to these random SNES games and these fighting games, and going to the arcade with Dagon and PJ, and whatever the case might be. It was just it was a really it was really nice because. You obviously want to have that affinity with your brother, especially when you're younger, but it really just did. If I was a piece of clay, it just kind of molded me and set me on a course. It's like it's kind of like inertia now. Well, of course, here I am. I mean, if you look back at my childhood and what was important to me and what what was driven into me, Dagan playing Super Mario Brothers three while I'm making airships with my Legos next to him. I remember these things. And they're really important. Not only to me as a person, but to me as a professional, to me as a a creator and a creative and all of that. So it's that's that's important stuff to me. So I want to give a, a, sh- a shout out to Dagan again for fun, 
camaraderie, nerdom, toil, creativity and exposure. And I did want to say toil because Dagan always did work hard. I mean, I Dagan has brought up the skateboarding thing in the past, but Dagan liked to skate, but Dagan also had to work at it to become good. And I know that because I used to skate with Dagan quite a bit when I was younger and then with PJ as best friend when Dagan left. And I was never good. I mean, I skated for a thousand hours probably or more. And I was always bad at it. So I, I, mean, I remember when I learned how to ollie, it was like a fucking miracle. <laughs> so, I mean, I was, and, and you know, trying to, ju- you know, trying to like, you know, jump into the half pipe or whatever behind new school and just destroying myself and all that kind of stuff. I just didn't have the aptitude for it. And so he always was working, whether it was at his art. And we got to really expose Dagan's old art because it's just so funny how his style has changed so much over time. But it was always excellent. Dad had our dad has this uh, some of these old drawings of his and like Christmas time drawings and stuff that are just totally like anime Japanese styles. Oh, they're awesome. Oh, thanks. So they're I mean, they're great because they're just they look like that style of stuff. I mean, of course, that's what your shit would look like if that's all you watched. So, <laughs> right, yeah. Exactly. So I, I, I so in terms of like my interests and we'll talk about someone else that I think is really indelibly affected my interest as well. But you have to be able to obviously tie that linear line back to Dagan. there's just no other way to put it. And even if Dagan and I didn't get along, let's say Dagan and I didn't get along. We didn't talk anymore. We were estranged or whatever. That would still be true because just obvious to anyone that was an observer of that, that it kind of spawned little Colin. I could have been anything. I could have been a jock or, I mean, I played sports, but I could have been anything. Uh, But I, I ended up being a nerd and I was a nerd really early too. And it was not cool to play T and D. In 1993, right. you know, it was not cool to <laughs> it was it was not cool to lock yourself in your room playing Final Fantasy three or whatever. So. So, yeah, shout out to Dagan, the uh, co-host of the show. Oh, He's I my number three. I appreciate it. And that, uh, thank you. And, and Ethan Fitzgerald actually wrote in on Patreon. He says hey, a person Ethan. that inspired me greatly growing up was my older brother. There is a 10 year age difference between us, ah. which meant that growing up, I idolized my older brother. We played video games, watched our favorite Detroit sports teams and played sports together. What I appreciate looking back on it is that he always made time for me coming home for the weekend occasionally while he was in college to hang out or taking me to events as he started making money at a real job. A lot of my personality and interests have their origins with him, and I remember our youthful times together very fondly. Unfortunately for me, he married someone that our family secretly despises and has damaged our relationship. So I'm sorry to hear that. Oh, that sucks. But hopefully you can work your way around that. So, yeah, a, a lot of brotherly connections. Again, not a huge surprise there but uh that's my third of five inspirations that i wanted to talk about today digging so i kick it back over to you just like you guys hate helene can't stand her yeah i mean she's secret for 25 years we've secretly hated <laughs> Helene. so well you know what kyle i'm so i'm so blessed to have you as a little brother and you know not to get all all mushy on you but i really appreciate that very much and i have to say too it's important for you to know it was so fun to share my passions with you. And it was really cathartic. You have to remember, it was really cathartic for me to have somebody to take under my wing, essentially, and show you all the things that I was into. Because, you know, prior to you, I had two little sisters who had very little interest in the things I was interested in. Of course, how it would normally go with little sisters, typically, or sometimes, or usually, or whatever you want to say, but especially in the 70s and 80s, that's how it was. Now, our sister, Allie, would go on to appreciate some of the things we appreciated with anime and video games and stuff. But we didn't really have that when I was younger. So 
I think probably from the time mom and dad announced that you were going to come come out and that you were going to be born and that you were going to be a boy, I'm pretty sure I was already planning everything I was going to share, everything I was going to, you know, try to mold you in the in the image of and all that kind of stuff. And you know, for me it was like I was just at that age of almost being 11 years old where it's like I had somebody to kind of mold in my image and show you the things I was into with toys and video games and anime and it was just it was so nice to be able to to have that, you know, and to have that in your outside of friendships and outside of distances and all that kind of stuff, I had that right in my home. And we really were, you know, you really kind of fell into loving those things and being driven by those things too. So it was very, it was very satisfying. And I totally hear you. You never know like what, you know, those big influences in your life, how it would have played out without those things. Like, yes, if I was into something else, would, would, at, you know, whatever it is, would you have been into that more? You know, we, you know, we also shared a big bond with Star Wars and other things. So it was, a, it was really, for me, it was always a great, you know, one of the great joys of being an older brother. It's, it's so important to, to be a good older sibling, brother or sister. I think it's really, really important. And yeah, I'm waiting for my, our daughter to be a little better with her younger brother. We'll see how it goes. She's at that age. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, she's well, she's a girl and she she has that girls grow up quicker and become disassociated, I think, quicker from family because they're just more mature. So hopefully she comes back and and uh, fulfills that goal for you. But yeah, I, I to me, I just I don't know. I mean, that's an obvious one. We've talked about that kind of ad nauseum on this show, but that is what the show is kind of about. And I do, you know, sometimes you kind of trick yourself into memories if you've had them or not, but I do have really distinct memory. I have lots of distinct memories of you as a kid. And we were speaking about G.I. Joe and the toys and all that. I remember going, I remember so well going in to the attic uh, to look at them for the first time. It's not something you really forget when you like discover that you love this thing. That's so cool. That you're being exposed to for the first time. And I think that it's, it's funny how it also came in waves. Like I, I got in with you. It was like I was in the G.I. Joe first and then like video games and then Star Wars kind of came in because Star Wars for people that weren't around or didn't know like Star Wars kind in the early 90s. I think it was in 1993 or 1994 that they announced that they were going to continue Star Wars, which ended up happening in 1999. I'm pretty sure Phantom Menace was finished in 1994, like the script. If I remember correctly, I think it's dated like November 1994 or something wow, like that. Wow, holy cow, I think you're right. So it was around that time when Star Wars started to really come back. The toys came back in 1995. They re-released the original movies in 1997 in the theater, which I remember so well because it was so exciting to be able to see them in the theater. And so it's funny how those things kind of just came in waves. So nothing ever really obscured anything else. And then it all kind of just became this amalgamation of things. And I, I think it's also worth saying, like, I took the things I think more than you or less than you, like. I think it's clear that I took the cartoon and anime thing much less than you to it, much less than you did. I loved it, but it wasn't as important to me as as it was to you with video games. I would say that they became even more important to me than they became to you. So it's also about making your own little chemistry. That's cool. out of all of that. And Good and point. why I say too with um, like with your son, Graydon, like you, he's covered with you with games, which is awesome. And why it's so important to me to make sure our other nephews that aren't so exposed to them are exposed to them so that they have this like connection to something that we're passionate about 
and can carry that on, which is why I gave you all my video games and all of that, because I don't really want or need them. I don't need material things. And it'll be something fun for your son to go through as he gets older and has just this insane catalog of games to choose from. So. So, yeah, shout out to Dagan. That's my third of five. Dig, I uh, kick it over to you to continue the list. Thanks, Kyle. All right. You know what? I wanted to take a little journey. This was actually an interesting one for me because I think about my history with art and how important it was to me from a very early age, obviously. And my earliest memories of drawing parallels to the art that I see or that I saw, comic strips, cartoons, early anime, my dabblings into comic books, and the artists that created those works. I tried to kind of go back, be introspective, dig down into the vaults of my my zombie-like animation brain and dig out who were the first artists that I recognized as a name being sort of drawn up to a specific piece of art. And one of the, or believe it or not, one of the earliest ones I came up with actually, and who's not on my list, but who I wanted to mention was the artist Ralph Macquarie. Now, fine artist, conceptual designer, known by nerds, of course, the world over as the creator and visual tour de force behind our favorite Star Wars spaceships and characters and tech and costumes and creatures and all that. And why Ralph McQuarrie was sort of on my radar as a kid was because Grandpa, of course, being that frustrated cartoonist, that frustrated illustrator, that artist, he would get me. I don't know if you remember these, Kyle, and I think he did it for Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. He would he gifted me this these really cool illustrations that were that came in a set. They were printed on poster quality paper, and they came in these beautiful cardboard sort of square envelopes. And then on the flip side of it, they were really an odd format. They were probably like 10 inches by 22 inches or something. So they were like, they were um, sort of panoramic in nature, horizontal in nature, not vertical. And they were, each one had a different Ralph Macquarie sort of visual development illustration on it. And on the flip side, it had like a little bio of each piece. A little description, something Ralph wrote, something George Lucas said, some sort of anecdote from production. And I remember specifically looking at the Return of the Jedi ones and being not as a kid really inherently disliking them because I didn't understand what it looked like to me was like, okay, here's an illustration of the the Gamorrean guards, but they don't look like this. Not thinking being a stupid eight-year-old and being like, this was the visual development to get to what you saw in the movie. This isn't a visual representation of actually what came out. This is how this was the visual exploration of how Ralph got to, you know, what popped up on the screen for us. This is what Jabba, you know, all those creepy illustrations of Jabba as like a humanoid with like this giant space helmet. And I really remember disliking them because to me, I just perceived them in my little kid mind as being off model representations of those things that I loved whether it was Jabba or Darth Vader or a Star Destroyer or a Biker Scout or an Ewok, whatever it was, a blaster. I was like, inherently, that's not right. But it's funny that that those earliest, some of those earliest name recognitions for me were negative. That was like, Ralph McQuarrie, no way, that guy sucks. Like, he can't draw a Gamorrean guard. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, he created a fucking Gamorrean guard, but I just saw it as being backwards. But what I do remember, and the way this came out was really interesting to me, 
was I think about probably three specific artists where I remember recognizing their name and being able to draw parallels to the work they created. And those three artists were Maurice Sendak, who of course illustrated Where the Wild Things Are, which are which was one of the most important children's books to me as a kid. Really one of the first sets of images book in a book or otherwise that really captured my imagination and that really drew me into a world that somebody had created with their hand, you know, pen to paper. And the second one being Dr. Seuss, of course, Theodore Geisel with all of his works. I was especially enamored with The Cat in the Hat when I was a kid. I would study that book for hours. I was just so drawn into the characters. I was so drawn into the the limited color scheme with the reds and the blues and the whites, the style of the drawings, how unique it was. And the third one, and maybe the most important to me, was Shel Silverstein, who was the illustrator slash poet who did those children's books that we all grew up with, The Light in the Attic, Where the Sidewalk Ends, and The Giving Tree, especially those three. And when I'm thinking about these guys, I'm thinking about their inherent strong visions, how their illustrations are unique, haunting, funny, unique, maybe a little bit scary sometimes, very personal. And each one looked like nothing else. You know, each one had a really its own sort of inherent quality where you could tell it was done by a certain hand with a certain voice. And what it dawned on me as I was writing this, it was really striking was that each one of these three people are illustrator, you know, they're writer illustrators. They do both. And that's what I like to fancy myself as, as a writer illustrator too. And like how those three guys, their visions, their skills, their talent, what they created had such a huge impact on what I would enjoy doing later in life, which is both writing and drawing. And now this is also sort of preemptive to having an interest in actually being an animator proper. So this is like really going back to the source of my really, my very earliest artistic inspirations and some of my most important, even to this day, and how it's so weird to me. It's almost touching in a way that it's like, wow, and each three of these guys, they were writers and illustrators. You know, they wrote and they drew. And how that must have had a huge impact and sort of got deep down and sort of, burrowed its way into me somehow and even from a very early age and stayed with me to the fact of that's still what I want, you know, still what I think of myself as. Later on, it would sort of develop also with discovering Calvin and Hobbes and Bill Watterson, another writer illustrator who was, is still one of the most endearing and to me, one of the most important artistic inspirations. So that never really stopped. That's just what I'm drawn to is like that writer-illustrator combo. And it started with those very early influences. And later on, it would sort of, I don't know, open up and engross a whole nother thing with Walt Disney, with being the first person who I recognized as an artist who sort of, his job was to marshal the forces of other artists and be the you know overarching creative voice behind a body of work and how that played into me very early with wanting to and still wanting to marshal a creative force of people 
that are perhaps more talented than myself in various skill sets and be that one sort of overarching voice to control and sort of bring those talents together and create something. And Walt was the first person I really recognized as that guy. And I remember being very early in my teens wondering like, wow, here's this, some of the most talented artists who ever lived. You know, you think about the nine old men and some of the best draftsmen that ever lived, Milt Call and Mark Davis and Frank Thomas and how, what was it that Walt had that made these guys, these most talented individuals want to work in order which to achieve his vision, to Walt's vision and get his approval and what was that force? What was that strength? What was that sort of personality that was imbued into Walt that made those master artists want to serve him, want to be part of his team? And, you know, being that head creative vision and sort of all these talented individuals being beholden to one man's vision. And what a genius he must have been for all of them to be working to inherit, you know, essentially please him. And they, they, it's not only sort of intimated, they've said that, you know, it was like we were working for his approval, almost like he was a father. And what kind of genius that man must have been because he had a, he had a band of geniuses working for him. Animators, artists, illustrators, filmmakers, writers, directors, all these people under his creative umbrella and really as you know, the the impact that Walt had on me as far as like wanting to also be how cool it would be to be that person and wanting to model myself after whatever mojo it was that he had to made to make other people want to work for him, essentially, and and do something that, you know, actually sort of rub off that belief that Walt had in his projects, sort of rub off on a group of people where they wanted to follow his lead and they wanted to, you know, he was sort of the Pied Piper and he was, they were the mice, but they were like so talented. They, each one of them could have done their own thing. But what was it that Walt had in wanting to model myself after that and capture the magic that Walt must have had because he did it for decades and he did it with some of the most talented people I would say that ever lived. And, you know, he was another one. If I have to talk about another of the most influential artists of my youth, it would have to be Walt. And it's also interesting because I think you think about Walt Disney, legendary icon status, but it can't be overstated. Like it's, it's completely true. Like what he did and what he created with the group of people that he created it with was revolutionary. And I don't, I don't know that it's ever been done again to the degree of, you know, to the degree of the 1950s and 1960s, the heyday of Disney, where it was like he was that one tastemaker. He was that one creative visionary who had that. And I'm not sure anybody ever captured that lightning in a bottle quite like he did ever again. So I have to give a shout out also to Walt. Some people wrote into us on Patreon about some creatives that they were also inspired by, like oh, the cool. creatives that you were inspired by. Nice. Joseph Lacino wrote into us, Dagan. He says, in terms of TV, Rod Serling was definitely an inspiration. Genius. His cool narration on Twilight Zone filled with morality, irony, and life lessons mesmerized me as a kid. I would wait all year to watch the marathons in the 2000s to get more sagely advice on the 4th of July or New Year's. Definitely an inspiration of my morality I keep with me to this day. It's interesting that you look at it that way, Joseph. Dagan and I are both huge 
Twilight Zone fans, you actually didn't put in what I think is the most interesting part of Rod Serling, which is not all his kind of appearances and moralizing and irony and all of that, which is just that he also produced that show. So huge inspiration to us as well. And me as a writer, I agree with you there. And Zach Forney wrote into us, Dagan, and he has one that I totally vibe with. He says, Aaron Sorkin is one of my great heroes. My parents would play the West Wing and a few good men around me when I was way too young to understand what was going on. But I love just hearing the dialogue An experience for me that was even more striking. Once I saw interviews where he said he felt the same way about plays his parents took him to when he was a kid in middle school. When I was trying to write stories more, I would search for his screenplays for the social network newsroom in the West Wing. Wow, you must be young, Zach, because the newsroom wasn't on that long ago because I was so captivated by his ability to create amazing characters, intelligent dialogue and to touch on heavy topics in such a nuanced way. Artists that come into your life and find a way to connect with you personally while also making you change your career path in the future long after your first experience with them have to be remembered and treasured forever. I know there are definitely artists, writers, animators, game designers, or a combination of all of those that have done this for you guys. And one of them for me happens to be Sorkin. Uh, Thank you, Zach, for writing in. I I think the audience knows I'm a massive West Wing fan. Aaron Sorkin wrote and created the West Wing, which is one of the great shows of all time, one of the great dramas of all time, just exceptional. And I'm glad that Zach brought up Newsroom, too, which was a three season HBO show that he did, I think, from 2010 to 2012, something in there. It got canceled, which is unbelievable. It was about the creation of a new show at like an MSNBC type place. It was awesome. And he's really into doing that because he also did that other show. Which, what was it called? Sports Night? which was even before West Wing, which is about the creation of like a sports center type show that was canceled after a season. So I love Aaron Sorkin. I'm waiting for Aaron Sorkin to come back and do something big. I think that there was a brunch. This was pre-COVID. I think it was last year, but like the whole cast was together with him um, having brunch and people were speculating if they were going to try to bring the show back in some way because it's not really about the president. It's so much about about the people that work for him. So. I have to watch the West Wing. I have to. I totally have to watch that. I have never seen oh, that. It's, it's so good, dude. It's, it's so good. Especially the first four seasons are just really, really good. He wrote a few good men, right? He wrote the screenplay for that. I think. Right, Aaron Sorkin. He There's did. a he's no, a he master did. at dialogue and character interaction. He really is. There's a moment in A Few Good Men. I always think of this. It's a weirdest little sort of throwaway moment, but there's a moment I believe in A Few Good Men where Tom Cruise is eating an apple. Like they're playing softball outside or something and he's finishing an apple and he throws the apple core in the garbage can and he doesn't have a napkin or anything. So he rubs his hands together really fast to like clean the stickiness off his hands. And it's such a little character defining character building nuance moment that is like it speaks so much to the character without saying anything. It's like one of those things that, you know, he wrote into the screenplay. That's just like this little that he probably saw somebody do. That had the personality similar to Tom Cruise in the movie. And it's just one of those little things that imbues so much life without. And it's like something I've never even seen again. But you get it. You get exactly what he's doing. You know, he's like this practical ego, kind of egocentric in over his head type character. And it's just like, whoa, it's just like, holy shit, blows my mind. So if the West Wing is anything like that, I have to watch it. Oh, yeah, dude. I mean, the West Wing is one of the most clever shows ever. I know that some people criticize his writing style because the whole adage is like no one talks like this but it's it's entertaining and style the whole the whole west wing the way the west wing's filmed is really inspirational to a lot of speaking of to a lot of things that have come since the whole walk and talk idea Mm. comes from the west wing 
And there are scenes in the West Wing, and I remember pointing this out to people when I was watching or rewatching it at different times. Like there are scenes where it doesn't cut for minutes. And this isn't something that you have very often on TV. So the West Wing's awesome. Uh, I was a little bit off about the newsroom. It's 2012 to 2014. That was a really great show. He also did that short-lived show uh, called Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip. He just likes doing TV shows anyway about, I don't know, procedural sort of things like making something, which is interesting. And um, he also, so he wrote A Few Good Men in 1992. And then more notably, he wrote The Social Network in 2010. He wrote oh, Moneyball. Right. He wrote the screenplay. Moneyball was a, a book, obviously. and he, and he wrote uh, Moneyball is a great book. I think you would love that book. And uh, that's all about saber stats and stuff like that. And then Steve Jobs, right. uh, he wrote the Steve Jobs uh, screenplay based on the excellent Walter Isaacson biography of Steve Jobs, which is a must read. So, uh, yeah. So shout out to Aaron. And we have more. Daniel Nichols wrote in. He said, hello to the Internet's best brotherly duo. Yo, for me, the person who was the biggest inspiration on me growing up was Robin Williams. I grew up without my father around and I, like many people my age from single parent households, got great comfort from the messages Mrs. Doubtfire gave out. I love that movie. But it was his performance in the movie Hook, which was to have the greatest impact on not only my childhood, but my adult life as well. The moment Robin bursts childlike from the tree and flies into the sky for the first time kindled in me such an element of wonder and imagination that I knew there there and then that I wanted to spend my life instilling that same feeling in others. This marks 17 years for me as a magician. And I still to this day credit the passion for illusion and mystery to that scene. Uh, so shout out to you, Daniel. Robin Williams, obviously wonderful man. Ah, the best, the best. A couple more creatives I want to read out before we move on here. Roberto Ricker wrote into us and said, hello, bros. My childhood inspiration for me is a man named Dave Warner. He currently works at Adobe and is the face of the character animator team. But way back in 2008, he was the creative director on a now defunct game creation tool called Atmosphere. It came out right after Roblox and right before Minecraft. I was 11 years old at the time. I had just moved from Massachusetts to New Jersey at the start of middle school and had absolutely no friends. Atmosphere was small and Dave was very active on their forums and would produce weekly video segments for the community. Wow. Rather quickly, I got to know him not just as a personality, but as a person. He treated me with a level of respect and candor at my young age that I never really experienced before. His creativity, openness, and drive was a massive inspiration. I poured my middle school heart and soul into, in creating atmosphere levels and sharing them with its small but wonderful community. I don't think Dave, Dave ever missed a single one, even as he ran the team at Minor Studios. He always gave great feedback, something no one else in my life could really provide at the time. While Atmosphere and Minor Studios died sometime around 2012 or 2013, my love of game design that Dave and his game Atmosphere instilled in me never diminished, and so I went to college for game design in 2014. There, I met who would become one of my go-to project partners and great friends because he recognized my Atmosphere t-shirt. He now works as a freelancer on Rocket League Esports and at Psyonix. My friend Jeremy is the VP there. Wow. I met Dave for the first time out in California in 2018, but was able to finally tell him face-to-face -face how much he did for me as a young creative kid struggling to find his place in the world. It's a moment I'll always cherish. I've now worked professionally in games for two years, and I've loved every moment of it. Without a single doubt, I can say I wouldn't be here without Dave. He and his team at Minor Studios were able to distill the infinitely complex world of game development into a single, simple, intuitive thing that opened my eyes to what my true calling was in the world. Wow. What a great story that is. Holy shit. That's amazing. Yeah. So shout out to you, Roberto. And one more before we move on. Uh, Henry Maxwell wrote into us and said, hi, guys, I grew up in rural South Georgia and was raised with a general expectation that I'd always be in and around my hometown of Blackshear, Georgia, until the day I die. 
And I was complacent with this notion until my parents divorced during my freshman and sophomore years of high school. During this time, I wanted nothing more than to be as far from possible from my home, but I did not yet own my own vehicle. Instead, I started to immerse myself in the travel channel. It was at this point of lacking a father figure and wanting to escape that I discovered Anthony Bourdain. Anthony Bourdain shepherded me through the to adulthood since because of many factors. I was o- often alone while at home. I was an artsy kid growing up and I liked to cook, but he opened the doors wide open and offered all this perspective on these things I already liked in addition to introducing me to all these cultures outside of my own. He helped me understand and accept different, some literally foreign opinions while remaining true to yourself. Needless to say, by the time I could drive, I would find any excuse I could to drive away and experience new things. Someone's mom needed a van retrieved 10 hours away in Baltimore. Got it. An older friend got mixed up with the wrong people and needs saving 17 hours away in Fall River, Massachusetts. No problem. By the time I left for college, I put in 14,000 miles in on my 1997 Ford Taurus. And of course, June 8, 2018 was a really hard time for me with Bourdain's passing. He has continued to inspire me until the day he died with all of, all of his series, but I still do my best to live the way he lived. In his own words, quote, as you move through this life and this world, you change things slightly. You leave marks behind, however small, and in return, life and travel leaves marks on you. Most of the time, those marks on your body and on your soul are beautiful. Often, though, they hurt. So that's from Henry. Wow. All about Anthony Bourdain. I loved Anthony Bourdain. I'm surprised you didn't bring it up, Henry, but his book, Kitchen Confidential, is like... A page turner, man. Is I it, fucking love really? that book. Oh, I love that book. Just I'm about his coming. coming up in the in the kitchens of New York City and like what it's really like. And it's absolutely I think that was how he got became famous in the first place was that book. But my uh, friend Nate's wife, Angie, lent it to me and I just. Just loved it. I, I tore through it. So I got to read that. Bourdain. I got to read. Yeah. I mean, you know, what? I'm a late comer to Anthony Bourdain. I knew he was all over the place. I knew he was a celebrity. He was a face. And. But I didn't realize how impactful he was until he passed away. And that's really, tr- that sucks. You know, so I'm a late comer now because you, in, in hearing everybody sing his praises when we lost him, it was like, wow, I had to kind of double down and be like, wow, who was this guy? And then realizing what, how impactful he was to the restaurant industry, to travel, how opinionated he was and how much he helped young chefs and all that kind of stuff. So it was like, wow, like I have to really dig down. So that book would be good for me because I could really now, uh, you know, be an appreciator. I'm sorry I didn't know about him while he was living. That It sucks, man. It's tragic. He comes up on Rogan a lot with, with Joe and also Joe's guests oftentimes. So I have to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah, he's he's great. That book, I highly recommend everyone read that book. It's very readable. It's not too uh, unwieldy. And a lot of people say, and I've gotten this dude so many times, although not so much recently, mostly because I'm not on camera anymore, but people really say I look just like Anthony Bourdain. Really? I don't personally see it, but I, I get it that. all the time. Do you really? Yeah. yeah Let me look take him it up. Are right you now. in front of your computer? Yeah, I am. Yeah, look him up. Let me look it up right now while you're, while you're talking. Let me see. Let me look it up. Like, I don't see it, but like, I've I gotten really it so from, from totally unassociated people many times. That's so strange. So. You never told me that. Yeah, let me see. Yeah, he's coming up. Yeah, I don't. No, man, I don't see it. I don't. See I don't it. either. But I mean, the first few times I was like, "What?" But then like it just kept happening. I'm like, "All right, I guess I look like Anthony Bourdain." Let me I don't see know. that gray. Not, I don't think it's a. Let me get that gray hair out of there. I don't think it's an insult. He's he's great. I love Anthony Bourdain. All right, R.I.P. The next person I wanted to bring up, since we're going in sibling order, is Dana, our sister. Uh, uh, one of our Dana sisters. Dane. For what Dana, I wrote inquisitiveness, reading, writing, 
Oh, I can't read my own notes here. Reading, writing, all oh, books, music, movies, TV, pop culture. So Dana, when, when our mom left our dad, Dana is the one who really raised me for a while, for a couple of years. And Dana and I have a very, very close relationship uh, as a result. A very, very, it's brother and sister, but it's, it's actually more like motherly and than anything else because of that. Dana's what, eight and a half or nine years older than me. And so she's just below Dagan and she's an English teacher. She's been an English teacher for 20 something years now. She teaches like AP, AP English and AP literature and honors English and stuff in high school and some community college, like transfer stuff for her students and all of that. So she's really engaged in academia. But Dana is a really voracious reader. She's been a voracious reader her whole life. And she actually worked at the local public library when I was a kid. So when mom left and dad was at the firehouse and I, I couldn't be alone. I used to go to work with Dana and I basically lived in Brookhaven Library, Brookhaven Free Library for a couple of years uh, when I was in like second grade and third grade and just really came to love reading, really came to love writing and the, and the written word and absorbing it and became a, a pretty voracious reader myself. And a lot of that has to do with Dana and a lot of my kind of more inquisitive nature comes from Dana as well. Dana was amongst the four of us, really the scholar she she was probably the only one of us that tried in school <laughs> and is in a lot of ways the, the most raw talent in terms of intellect, I think, out of the four of us. And what I always loved about her was just like she kind of had this division of labor in her own mind, I, I, I assume, where she had to take care of her business. She was a, a student athlete. She ran, she played soccer. She did all these things, track and cross country, and she was a great student. Um, but also she had like a real love, like I said, for pop culture. And it was through this that I really absorbed a lot from her. And she, much like Dagan, really took me under her wing in a totally different direction. This is why, as an example, 90210 came out in 1990. I was six when 90210 came out. And I have seen every episode of that show. And I watched a lot of it with Dana when I was like really like, seven, eight, nine, ten, watching this stuff, you know, later on party of five and and all these all these different kinds of things. And of course, the the indelible effect that her musical taste had on me, whether you're talking about Rage Against the Machine or Ben Folds Five, Bare Naked Ladies. Dana brought me to some of my first concerts uh, when I was a kid. I saw Bare Naked Ladies with her a handful of times. Uh, she used to bring me to movies all the time and and Dagan did, too. But she brought me to a lot of these different kind of movies. She She also exposed me to a lot of things that would probably be more embarrassing for a young boy in the 80s and 90s to admit that he really liked. I really liked musicals because of Dana and stuff like Sound of Music and Rent and whatever the case might be. And just this 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 insatiable appetite for pop culture. Dana can just rattle off all these kinds of different things and in an almost encyclopedic way. And so I'm really thankful for a lot of different things with Dana, not only as a kid and growing up and her kind of helping mold me and seeing a lot of that now on her sons and and how she always tells me that, which is really heartwarming. But also, just because if we're talking about the various things and the various ways someone makes you who they are, or who you are today, then Dana really got me into all these things. I just remember I remember getting from Brookhaven Elementary School like a you got like some sort of reading list thing and then like a bunch of stickers. And the more you read, you get more stickers on it and stuff. And she got me like really into that. And before I knew it, I was just really attached to the written word. And I'm, I, I consider myself. I'm a podcaster and a business owner and an entrepreneur and all of that, but I really do consider myself first and foremost a writer. Much like many writers, I don't do much writing. I do a lot of thinking about writing. 
these days. But <laughs> nonetheless, I, I, I have to I have to give uh, I have to give Dana a shout out for all that kind of stuff. I'm really thankful for the inquisitiveness that she instilled in me, the love of the written word that she instilled in me. I think I really became a musician because of her. She loves music and has a real good taste for film and TV. And we still really share a, a passion today together for our, our especially our combined love of period pieces, which is a very feminine thing, frankly, that I think that I got. Not that there's anything wrong with men liking it. I do, but it's a feminine thing. I mean, there's not many like straight male fans of Down Abbey or whatever or Elizabeth or whatever fucking weird shit we watch. Right. Uh, the Tudors. So it's it's cool for me to be able to share that with someone. And it's clearly where I got it from. And I really love that about about that as well. I think that Dana is the reason I'm so eclectic. And I've always taken a lot of pride in that, that I am eclectic, that I do have a lot of different interests and a lot of diverging and converging interests that sometimes have something to do with each other and other times don't. And I think that that that, again, is some sort of puzzle or amalgamation put together from the various influences of my siblings. We'll talk about our other sibling next. But uh, yeah, I wanted to give a shout out to Dana for that. Much love to Dana. It's great to be around her down here and her boys. I'm actually going to have dinner with them in a couple of days. So that's nice. And uh, so, yeah, shout out to Dana. That's awesome. I see where you're going now with this episode. You're making me look really bad. <laughs> but to, hey, kudos to you, Kyle. I, you know, you do. I like the way you're doing this, my friend. When are we going to get Dana Dane on an episode? When are we going to get her on a podcast? People must be dying to meet her by now. I think that when you come here next, well, it's just easiest for you to when you're here, we'll just do it here. That'll be fun. Could we can we twist our arm? Do you think I I don't think it'll be a problem? I'll pay them, too. I mean, you know, if if they feel like they want to be paid, I pay you to do the show. So if if, I think that would be fair and maybe a nice way to convince them as well. But they probably wouldn't even care about any of that. But. Yeah, I, honestly, Dagan, I thought you kind of understood the what I was going for from the very beginning. So I th- had an inkling. I had an inkling, but now I now I know. Now I know for sure. What, well, you know what? It's funny with Dana. She figured very prominently in our divorce episode, especially in my well, in both of our stories, really. But I have to say a couple of things about Dana real quick. First of all, as kids, I busted her chops so much. Like I was the relentless teasing older brother. I wasn't that, you know, I'm only a year and a half older than Dana is, but she was always so mature and responsible beyond her years that oftentimes, Helene still laughs about this. Oftentimes to this day, people think she's the oldest because I was always kind of the irresponsible, you know, kid. And she was always the mature, you know, definitely much more mature, definitely much more stoic, definitely much more business-like, she got the she really did she had an impact on me in high school because she like Colin said she was really did a great job at school she was an honor roll student she was also very serious about her soccer and her track she she was a student athlete and she always worked you know she had her gig at the library mm-hmm. she was always really serious about that and you know i was the kid who just skated his way through school i just got by by the skin of my teeth I was all about skateboarding. I would call in sick to my job. And she had an impact on me, which I never really talked to her about before. But I would sometimes stop in my tracks and be like, all right, like you got to go. Like, look at what your little sister's doing. Look how responsible she is. She's always getting the job done. She sacrifices her social life. Like, she's actually got her shit in order. Like, go to work tonight. Like, don't call out sick again. You called out sick last week, you know, type of thing. 
So she would she actually kind of inspired me a little bit through that era of looking at looking up to her a little bit in that regard, being like, wow, she's so responsible and mature. She always does what's expected of her. And she had an impact on me that way. But I busted her chops and teased her relentlessly. To the fact, I don't know if I ever told this story on the show. One day after school, I think it was, I know that it was still night, it wasn't nighttime, it was still daytime. I was busting her chops about something, just really just going at her. She ran into the kitchen, opened the knife drawer, took a handful, not a knife, a handful of knives, like cleavers, steak knives, butcher knives, whatever was in there, and ran after me with them. Now, thank God she didn't fall, right? If she caught me that day, I know she was so angry with me. If she, there would be nothing, I wouldn't be here right now. I would have been dead. Like if she caught me, like I would, and she was fast. Don't forget, she ran track. So it was only my adrenaline that would get away from, you know, have me get away from Dana when she was chasing me because, and I, I would have deserved it also because I was just like a relentless ball buster with her. But the other thing about her is she, exposed me to three distinctive pieces of media, each one different, that uh, a book, a movie, and a band that are three of my favorite things ever. Now, I, I had AP English in high school, but somehow, I don't know how it happened, but I'd never read To Kill a Mockingbird. And that was always one of her favorite stories, and I always knew that. So after, I guess it was after college, I read To Kill a Mockingbird for the first time on her, you know, on her recommendation, knowing how important the book was to her. A movie that she recommended to me one night, Almost Famous, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, one of Helene and I's favorite movies together as a couple of all time. And Dana introduced me to 10,000 Maniacs slash Natalie Merchant. And I would make fun of Dana's Dana's music relentlessly, but that was one I would tease her about that I also really liked. So she's she was my introduction to those things. So she's uh, I feel like she's the least heard voice of our family. You know, Allie, Allie and Dana are kind of battling it out for that status. I'm sure people, you know, CLS people, knockback people specifically would like to hear from those two on the show. Uh, they're definitely going to both give me the business when we're on the show together, and I'm fully expecting that. But um, also, Dana, for Dana, one of the most thoughtful people I've ever met. She's super thoughtful, and family means a lot to her. You know, she's one of those people that really never... She's very responsible with keeping in touch, very responsible for keeping the lines of communication open, and makes you feel like she genuinely misses you. Now she could be lying, but if she is, she's a good she's a good liar. Yeah, she's uh, the reason that we all speak every week on Zoom with our dad because good dad's kind of isolated on the island, so the rest of us are down here. But yeah, dig it. Just to reiterate, we'll. When you're here next, we'll get I mean, it, it now that I live here and now that I have space, like I have real space here, we have everything we need to, to record with them. So it'll be fun. We can do that really at their leisure. Yeah, we'll definitely get that done. It's going to be a hazing of Colin and I just so you guys expect a three hour. Hazing. Yeah, I think that, I think that'll be fun. <laughs> I think it'll be fun. I like that. I make fun of myself all the time. All right. Dig, I kick it back over to you. All right. I'm going to do a quick one here. This kind of. um, Well, we talk about Star Wars, right? talk about nerd culture, talk about what's important to us, Colin and I specifically. So I thought I would bring in a little Star Wars tale into the fold here. It just occurred to me, thinking about being a little kid, who did I admire up on the small screen, up on the big screen? Who did I want to be the most? What fantasy characters, what fictional characters sort of engaged me 
encouraged my imagination, captured my imagination in many ways. And I have to boil it down. The two, it really, in considering all this, I realized that there are two people or characters that I spent the most time pretending to be out of every, anybody else ever in my life, probably. And that is, of course, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo. And I have to say, in thinking about this and writing the notes, it makes sense, especially for somebody of my generation, a Gen Xer who grew up with the initial, the original Star Wars trilogy, right? Han and Luke are the ultimate combo in terms of coolness, personality, prowess, etc. If you blend these two characters, you do get the ultimate idol or hero to any early 80s seven to eight-year-old. I mean, it's you can't dispute that. Han's coolness, his sarcasm, his charisma, his space piratey, outlaw-y personality combined with Luke's magical force powers. I mean, of course, we were playing at being these characters day in and day out. When we weren't playing with the action figures, we were pretending to be them. I think back to those epic campaigns, Tommy and I, John and Matt maybe in there too. We waged these campaigns in a foot of snow or more pretending to be, you know, hunkered down in the ice trenches of Hoth waiting for the Imperial Walker attack. We spent hours at this dude with Tommy's ski goggles on and all the right equipment and the, and the toy blasters and pretending we were riding tauntauns and fighting Darth Vader and everything, pretending to fly X-Wings, of course. So I got to give a quick shout out to Luke and Han, Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill, of course. I, I don't think literally, even though that was a very isolated period of our lives, maybe we did that from like four or five through eight. I still, even though it was like a three or four year time period, all told, we definitely spent the most time emulating those two. And of course, also Indiana Jones for inspiring our oh, of course. first career goal. I mean, looking at this man on screen and being like, I want to do that. I want to do exactly what this guy's doing. And I want to be exactly what this guy's being. And also, you got to point out Harrison Ford, two of those three characters. That's got to mean something. So just a quick shout out to those. Just a quick shout out to those fantasy characters that we wanted to be growing up. Um, I had to give them a shout. We have a couple of those that I think are are parallel to this. Uh, Andrew Cuccieri wrote into us and said, many like to hate on Superman, but he's always been one of my biggest inspirations as a kid and why I believed in always being good and a loyal friend. I sure hope he'll once again get the love he used to with some amazing films. And goddamn, I want a triple A Superman game so bad. Going to be waiting for that for a while, Andrew. But thank you for writing in. <laughs> <laughs> Kayla, I love being so dry. I think I think most people get it, but I love I love my dry, I love my own dry humor. And uh, Caleb Greer wrote in. I I'm I'm loath to read this because it's so horribly nerdy. But he says, "Hello, Colin and Dagan. I must say, a lot of people who inspired it and instilled positive values in me, besides my parents, are fictional protagonists in anime. Whether it be Naruto or Goku. In real life, however, Bob Ross has always been a bedrock for me of kindness, understanding, and the idea that it's okay to make mistakes." Everyone is their own person, and that's fine. Caleb, I'm going to ignore the anime stuff because that's too nerdy for me. But the Bob Ross thing, I've said this in the past, but I love that on Twitch.tv slash Bob Ross, I think. But you guys can just Google what exactly it is. They play Bob Ross continuously from like Friday afternoon to Monday morning it's the best. every every week. Oh, it's the it's best. Awesome. Oh. It's awesome. I, I just watch it. I watch it all the time. Yeah, I love it. That's a it's worst. Great. That's a not so well dressed non 
uh, artistic version. Dr. LaPera is a, is a, is a better dressed, not so artistic version of Bob Ross. That's exactly what Dr. LaPera was. That soft spoken, soothing, calming. That's exactly it. Like it's the same guy, but Bob Ross has, you know, jeans and an Afro and a paintbrush. <laughs> Dude, he's the best. Like I, I'm watching it sometimes at night and I'm like, is that, does that motherfucker have a squirrel? Yes, he does. And yeah, he does. He just straight up had a score. Yes, does that motherfucker does. have two birds? <laughs> yep. Living in his fro. <laughs> He's got like two just, they're like sparrows. It's like, where did you even get so these good. things? He's like Snow White. So it's not like a parrot or something. It's like, where did you get this fucking, <laughs> this yellow crested sparrow I love, I love that, man. What a loss. Uh, what a loss. Oh, I know. I know. It's And I've said this. I know I've said this on the show in the past, but I am all about getting one of his paintings. Like, I don't care which one it is. I just, I, they're not apparently that valuable. And he that did a lot. Find because he, paint, he painted so many of them. Yeah, he thousands. You can apparently drop like five grand or so and get a, uh, get a real Bob Ross painting. And oh, I'm, that'd be I'm amazing. like, I'm like, I'll take it. That'd I'll take a Bob Ross. Especially if you can get one of the ones. So apparently what they used to do, and I think I've said this, so I'm sorry for being redundant for people that listen to every episode. But apparently what they would do is they would take the paintings that he made on the show, the Joy of Painting. And then give them the various PBS stations to, to basically give away during their teledrives oh, or whatever. Oh, that's a great idea. Okay. Makes sense. And so that's how everyone, that's how they found their way into the wild by the hundreds. And so I would love to find one and then be able to tie it to the show it came from and stuff. I think that would be fucking cool as hell. I would love that. Do also, it. there's a thing. I, th- I think there's a Twitch bot. I think it is. But where they like basically... Um, have all these bets in the chat about like if there's going to be a building in the in the painting or if there's going to be like a person because it's a really rare for him to do stuff like that. Yes. And totally. so people start like there's like I think there's like a, a dozen or so paintings that have people in them and maybe like a few dozen with buildings. <laughs> and otherwise, it's just all nature. So and, you know, little log cabins and stuff like that. So, yeah, I, I love Bob Ross. He's great. And, and I agree. He, he that show could have lasted forever. I think that sh- that show would be huge on the Internet. There's no one that really does anything like that. I, I Bob Ross was probably what in his in 1990. I'm going to look this up. I'm going to before I even looked, up, I'm going to predict Bob Ross in 1990 was 40. Let's see. He mm. was born. Oh, no, no. He was born in 42. So Older. in 90, he would have been 48. So maybe he wouldn't really have been around. And you know what, dude? He married someone the year he died. Oh, shit, Linda. Really? Bo- he was he was. Twice divorced and then married someone in 1995, which was the year he died. He died, would, died July 4th. How did he die? Oh, he had lymphoma. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. Who would divorce Bob He kept Ross? his diagnosis a secret. Oh, wow. What'd did you he really? I, who would divorce him? Who would divorce that man? I don't know. Vivian Ridge married 1965, divorced 1977. And then Jane Ross, he married her the same year he got divorced, 1977. Died. Oh, she died. Oh, she I'm sorry. She died in 1992. Then he married Linda Brown the year he passed away. And of course, he was an active duty Air Force uh, drill uh, master sergeant for 20 years. Wow. That's amazing. Including all of Vietnam, 1961 to 1981. He served. (laughs) Anyway, I don't know what what the hell we're talking about here. Dagan. The final person I want to bring up, obviously, is Allie, our other sister. For Allie, I wrote down irreverence, style, relatability, closeness. And then I think she shares a lot of some or some of the other things that we got from others as well, like uh, fun pop culture music. So the thing about Allie is that she was the only one of the three of you that were really that was really accessible to me by age where it was kind of like a normal age differential Mm. and a normal family. Allie and I 
they might have even been able to squeeze two kids between us, but we were still only five and a half years apart. So we kind of grew up together in a in what I would say is a different way than I grew up with you two because you two were kind of up and out. But Allie was around. I mean, Allie graduated from high school when I was in eighth grade. So it's not like we were that far apart. And we also experienced some things together. She lived with me for a year in Maine. Uh, famously, when she was in 11th grade, she was having a little bit of a hard time. She came and lived with us in Maine. And I have a lot of funny memories of Allie. But I think more than anything, it's as I said in my little rundown there, she's got a real irreverent style and she's got a, a, a certain I wanted to write closest down because I feel like Allie seems to be the most familial of all of us in terms of of being close, of maybe some sort of sentimentality and all of that, which I think I really gained a lot from her as well. And the, again, just to say it again, the relatability, I just feel like Allie was approachable and is approachable. I think she's incredibly relatable, incredibly kind. Uh, she's got a lot of wisdom. And so Allie and I butted heads the most when we were kids because we were the closest in age two. I, I feel like with Allie, I, Allie's the only one I had a real sibling relationship with where there was fighting. There was this. And that. I remember saying some pretty mean shit to Allie, you know, and. I actually told her one of the things I remembered saying to her that I that she didn't remember at all. But I was like, I felt bad about it like my whole life when she basically didn't get immediately get into the college she wanted. She ended up going to the college she wanted to, but she she um had to reapply. And I remember saying to her at the kitchen table in Brookhaven, like, uh, you're just mad at me because you didn't get into college or something like that. You know, oh, like wow. weird shit like that. OK. Yeah. And I remember saying that because I remember her best friend, Stephen Aviano, was with her. And he's come up in the past because his little brother, Bryce, was a good friend of mine growing up. But I remember him being there and him being like, what the fuck? Like, what did you say that for? And I, I just always remember that. And she probably never thought about it ever again. You know, it's one of those weird. It's just one of those weird moments that that only one person remembers or whatever. But, sure. Yeah. But obviously, Ali also has a lot of style and pop culture bona fides. And she got me into a lot of really random stuff. I remember very clearly when we lived in Maine together, she came home with really un- two really unusual records the same day or CDs. One was Rancid's and Out Comes the, Out Comes the Wolves, which is an excellent record, excellent Rancid record. That's the one with Time Bomb and Ruby Soho on it. And then she also came back with the best of ABBA. And I remember and I love that record, too. And I remember thinking, like, wow, what a what a an eclectic approach to, to music and what an eclectic approach to to exposing yourself to different things, because this was in the mid 90s when this is long predates peer to peer networks and MP3s and stuff. You kind of got what you got. You sometimes you were really lucky, like when I bought Green Day's Dookie or No Doubt's Tragic Kingdom, and you ended up getting one of the best records of all time. Other times you get just garbage with a single that you heard on the radio once. And so she was a really huge inspiration for me with the music and and all of that too, and and the style as well. I remember she she might not even remember this, but she had like these in Maine. She had these like little gold rings that were you could like basically use as like fake earrings. And I remember she like would put them on me and like put a fake nose ring on me. So it looked like I had a nose ring <laughs> and, and stuff like that. And so I, I felt the closest to Allie as a young kid just because of our age differential. But certainly her irreverence. Um, she's got a bohemian style just like dad does, I think. And uh, a really relatable and fun and kind person. So got to give a shout out to Allie as well. She kind of falls last fiddle here though because a lot of the continuity that's between everyone like she shares her kind of fun and her and 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 her music and reverence with you know other people so she kind of gets the short end of the stick here it almost would have been more fair to her to go in opposite order but this is the way we did it nonetheless i see you know what i mean yeah absolutely but that in any event scoop 
Scoopy. Scoop, Nickname exactly. Scoopy. Yeah. Another one we have so, to hear from on the podcast. Yeah, we'll definitely get her. I mean, she lives down here, too. I mean, we're all within 15 minutes of each other. So, so she'll be on, too. So, yeah, that's my final one for me is Allie. Do you have any other ones that you wanted to share before we uh, move on to wrap it up? Well, you know what? I'll second your praises for Allie. You know, she's really a true individual. Her and I were always very close, very like-minded in a lot of ways. Of course, she's an artist. She's creative. So we share that that bond together. And yeah, she's... Oh, and you know what else is really cool about Allie? She, w- she turned out to be... She went to school in New York City and lived in Brooklyn, went to school in Manhattan. And she turned out really to be the most urban of all four siblings as far as living in the city and spending time in the city and all that kind of stuff. But she really does carry that sort of flavor again like colin says that sort of bohemian nature she's also she's also very funny she has a great sense of humor and uh yeah it'll be great to have her and dana on the show so the four siblings could could talk and um colin and i could get our get our chops busted up you know what, come up come up and <laughs> come up and as it were you know i'll end with one family member though i wanted to briefly shout out because he was really important to me as a kid and sort of really was another father figure type in my life. And that's Uncle Mike, our Uncle Mike. We talk mm, about him on the show. Sure. Um, he's a really, he's got a sort of um, cult following status on Knockback. I know he's sort of like this legendary presence. Some Someday we'll have to talk to him at length on the show. But he was really important to me, especially as a kid, because nowadays I joke around with him that, you know, it's it's nice he's retired he and I could finally play golf together and stuff like that. But, you know, the distance is a little prohibitive. But he was really instrumental in my childhood because he always, besides being absolutely hilarious, one of the funniest per- people I've ever met and genuinely funny, spur of the moment funny, completely unplanned. That's just who he is. He always seems so carefree and joyful and lighthearted and young at heart to me. He was the one who took us down to the schoolyard and plays, played basketball. He was the one who took us to the diner late at night or took us mini golfing, took us to the movies, had sleepovers at his house, his, his and Aunt Carla's house. He, would, he was really, our dad worked so much that he was really the one that, you know, essentially filled in the gaps for us, especially for me and Dana growing up and having that father figure. And he was different than dad because he was more prone to joking around and being silly or just doing doing things like shooting hoops and stuff. Dad wasn't really down for that. And our dad, you know, he really worked a lot. So he wasn't around for all that all the time. So, you know, Uncle Mike was really the one that taught me how to play baseball. He was really important. He was a really important figure in my life, whether you want to construe it as a father figure or as just like, he, he was almost, although he was an uncle, he almost felt like a big cousin. That's how he always felt to me. You know, he would... He would take us when we were out on the highway, he would joke around and drive too fast. Like he would do things that were just looking back like he gave us such funny and warm memories. And, you know, he grew up right across the street from our aunts and our mom. So he was really essentially always part of the family. Of course, he ended up marrying the girl across across the street, our Aunt Carla. But he was really always part of the family. He was always really a Ruggiero. And he's still it's funny that he's now part of the he and Aunt Carla and our cousin Jamie are part of the Richmond, Virginia contingent of the family. I guess I'm assuming Aunt Joni and Uncle John, although they say they're not, they're going to end up down there eventually too. 
And it's just cool that he's still, you know, he's just still part of the landscape of our family and nothing's really changed in that regard. The only ones we're really missing, of course, are grandma and grandpa, you know, but just thinking back, Uncle Mike's one of those guys. It's like my, some of my earliest memories, some of my funniest memories as a kid. And just again, like thinking of Uncle Mike and our aunts and mom and dad and Dana and everybody in the family, that history you develop together, those bonds you make together. It's it's so cool that we still have that. You know, I still have that for one 46 somewhat years later. It's still the same thing. Even though you don't talk as much, you don't see each other as much, you have that bond because you have all that history and those the good times and the good memories. So Uncle Mike was definitely one who also, because of his nature, he he was just like anybody else. He had anxieties, he had worries, he, but he never showed it. And I think as a kid, I talked about that with Dr. LaPera. It was like a, a bit of his personality that I wanted to snatch up and sort of incorporate into my own person that he seemed so carefree. He seemed like he didn't have a care in the world. He seemed like he was never worried about anything. And I always wanted to take a little piece of that. And maybe he did, you know, maybe just being around him so much, things rub off by osmosis. You know, just taking a little bit of that Uncle Michael-esque personality where he's funny and he's sort of lighthearted and nothing's bothering him, doesn't have a care in the world, or at least seemingly so, and trying to fold that into your own your own being. So he he gave me that, at least wanting to aspire to that. So shouts out to our Uncle Mike. Yeah, definitely. It's it's awesome to be around him and you know, we're we're big football fans. We play fantasy football and we've I've been in his league now for eight years that he's been in for more than 20 so we we share that together and yeah he's just a funny cat and you know what's really fun watching him interact with the three boys and ayla as well the you know our nephews and niece that are down here they just they all love uncle mike and um it's just it's funny so it's it's cool it is generational and you know he had a few health scares so i'm glad that he's uh he's with us and healthy and all that as well definitely a big kid he's just a big kid you know, he really is. Yeah. He hasn't changed. Certainly. And he looks great. I, I can't. I'm sure if you showed me a picture of him as a 25 year old, I'd be like, oh, wow. You know, but to me, he's the one guy who's like, wow, Uncle Mike still looks like Uncle Mike. Like it's just never changed. I'm getting older. I'm getting gray. My Gandalf beard here, all the grays in it and everything. But Uncle Mike still looks like Uncle Mike. It's amazing. Indeed. I know. I totally hear you. It's 100. And we'll get him on the show at some point, too, because he's a bit of a cult figure now <laughs> in our Definitely. in our show. <laughs> All right. Before we go, I have a couple others I want to read. Uh, just some inspirations people had. Kendrick Lukenbach wrote into us and said, hey, Moriarty bros. My childhood inspiration growing up was Kobe Bryant. Uh-huh. I started playing basketball as a kid in 97, and that's around the time Kobe came into the NBA. My family are huge Lakers fans in Southern California, so witnessing their early 2000s dynasty was amazing as I modeled my schoolyard basketball skills after Kobe. My struggles in my young adult life with self-esteem, anxiety, and depression were helped so much by the wisdom Kobe put out in the world in his later years. I felt like as he grew through his NBA career, it helped me grow into adulthood. Kobe passed away at the start of 2020, and it was like losing a family member. I've never felt that for someone I never knew, but he impacted my life for 20 plus years. My favorite quote for him will will be with me forever. Quote, the magic in life is finding what it is that you love. When you find that thing, then life makes sense. End quote. Yeah, when he died in January, I was uh, it was shocking. Kobe Bryant. Not a huge NBA fan by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I do pay attention to basketball and know the major players and stuff. And Kobe was young. It, it seemed like Kobe Bryant was always in the league, but that's because he really was always in the league. He came into the league at 18. I, I'm pretty sure it was either with him or with um, with someone that came after him where they had to kind of like make an age exception, I believe. 
in the draft because they were like an unusually good player. Okay. And they did they do this in the NHL sometimes too as well because you have to actually in basketball now you have to play for at least one year in college. You can't get drafted out of high school anymore, but he was drafted out of high school and he was just kind of always around. I mean, he did I think start playing in 97ish. I was in like 8th or ninth grade. So to kind of take that all the way into earlier this year, I'm 35 and he and he's still around but he's he's not playing anymore but he's deceased. He died in a helicopter crash. Ah, oh, so and tragic. I'm pretty sh- I'm pretty sure that one of his daughters died, I think, as well. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Which is even more tragic. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so shout out to Kobe Bryant. I totally agree with you. He always seemed he had his problems, as I remember. I know he had a lot of animosity at times with Shaq and, and you know, on that Phil Jackson team, that prolific Lakers team and all of that. But overall, I think he was a, a positive for many, many a person and kind of just in. Uh, a staple of American culture. So it was weird to see him die. It was it was very sad, no doubt. But I, I felt like it was really weird, too. You know, it, we, we brought up Robin Williams before. That was another one where I was like, wow, it's really weird. Robin yeah. Williams is dead. Icons. You know, it, I felt I felt the same way about Kobe. So, yeah. So sh- shout out to Kobe Bryant, of course. And I like this one a lot. Rob Aiken wrote into us and said, greetings, you marvelous Moriarty men. Nice alliteration. I submit but one humble man, that man being Neil Armstrong. Now, we can go into depth on his mighty accomplishments for those ill-educated, but suffice it to say his sheer work ethic and humbleness, it would be humility, are virtues that have inspired me. Any mere mortal would go to the rest of their lives bragging about such an accomplishment, but for Neil, Neil, it was the next objective, now on to the next one, whilst always downplaying his role in promoting the ground crew and saying we landed on the moon together about Buzz, a real leader and one that promotes his team and not himself, and that has been something I try to live by. Now, everyone knows I'm a huge space fan, so I love Neil Armstrong. And it is true what uh, Rob says here. Neil Armstrong, like, never talked about himself. I think that before he died, there was only, like, a few really in-depth interviews with him, and, like, about Apollo 11 and all of that. And he did often defer to Michael Collins and uh, Buzz Aldrin about, you know, Michael Collins was basically the pilot and got them there. And Buzz Aldrin obviously was an instrumental part in landing there while Collins remained in orbit during Apollo 11. I totally agree though. If I landed on the moon, I'd have the biggest dick that you could possibly imagine when I came back. There's only, I think 18 people that have been there. I think that might even be too many. I think it might even be 12 or something like that. That amazing. That's nuts. You know, and there are more people that are like, you know, orbited around it before and after, but he is an amazing and exceptional and, and humble man. And can you just imagine being the commander of something like that? Like you have That's to insane. have some balls, oh. you know, you have no idea what you're really going to find. You have no idea. Apollo 10 just did a circumnavigation from orbit. They got a good look at it. There was a lot of fear. Like, what are we landing? in? are we landing in like feet of dust? There were people that thought that they were going to land. Like the moon was so ancient and so untouched for so long that, they were just going to fall through it. Crumble. Basically. Wow. That's crazy. You know, it's like basically just the, 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 the lander, the eagle will just sink into the dust because what? it's been sitting there for, you know, so long. They didn't really know what they were going to get. And it's uh, not to mention like just the, the one six Earth gravity. You're, you're flying 200,000 miles away. You're going like 25,000 miles an hour. You know, it, it's, it's some crazy. pretty serious shit. Serious and, courage. And it's hard. We haven't gone back. I mean, we're going to go back in a couple of years, but. We haven't gone back since the early 70s. The reason for that, we haven't gone back in the microprocessor era, which is just nuts. They were using all of this really ancient technology and 
I can't imagine what we're going to do now with SpaceX and NASA and all that's going to be really exciting. But that's a really great shout out to Neil Armstrong, a great man, great American, recently died in the last couple of years as well, unfortunately. Buzz Aldrin's still floating around, though. And one of my favorite Buzz Aldrin <laughs> videos is when he punched that guy in the face, which is like one of the best. Have you ever seen that video? No. A Buzz Aldrin? No. There's a guy. It's probably 20 years ago now or whatever. Buzz Aldrin was like confronted by a guy outside a hotel or something. And the guy was like saying that he never landed on the moon. And Buzz Aldrin just punched him in his face. <laughs> Fucking awesome. What? And, yeah, you got to look it up. It's totally it's like oh, a, I, a, I will a, definitely a legendary, iconic video. Oh, my and God. And I, and I what I love about Buzz Aldrin the most is that he's like really one of the only honest people about the cost, the human cost of traveling in space. And he's one of those guys that's a, I think it's called Moon or Mars to stay. He's one of the people that basically says like NASA should just send people to Mars with no hope of bringing them back because it would be so much easier ah. than then <laughs> we can like they'll we're not, they're not going there to die. They'll be like they'll make like a habitat and all of that and live there. But his whole argument is like it would be much easier to just send people there and start learning about it than having to worry about bringing them back. And by the way, like every astronaut in NASA would go. So it's not like you're going to have a hard time. Does make finding sense. Someone. Makes total sense. You know, Pract- for practical reasons. Yeah, of course. Yeah. If you're just going and landing and then sending shit there to land and like build like whatever, as opposed to having to go there and then bring the fuel and the rocket boosters and stuff that go back. If you just remove all of that, then you can go to Mars easy in like nine months. <laughs> So crazy so, to think about that. So he, I always loved Buzz Aldrin, Buzz Aldrin because when you see him, he's always wearing those shirts that say like "Go to like Mars or Bust" and like "Mars to Stay" and all that. I love. You know, he's a great voice for NASA. He's living still it. to this day. I prefer Buzz Lightyear still, but eh, he's a he's, he's yeah. Got- well, they need to take. Uh, by the way, you think that those guys took their own moon rocks? I would have to ha- hope that they did. Oh, I would hope take so. their own. Yeah, I hope NASA wasn't fucking annoying. You know, like you can't. We have like hundreds of pounds of them. It's like give fucking Buzz Aldrin a piece of the moon for God's God. God, so he doesn't he deserve that? A keepsake? <laughs> I mean, I would definitely have just taken it. So, I mean, I, I, and if they gave me a hard time, I'd be like, I'm taking it. I'm taking a piece of this fucking thing of the moon. I couldn't imagine holding that in your hand. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. So cool. Oh. There are like these disgusting like pieces of moon in like museums where everyone touches them and stuff. And it's like probably under like five inches of grossness that are that that's not the moon but to have like yeah. a real live moon rock that's different that's I, cool. I remember seeing one i think it was in the smithsonian but in one of the smithsonians but i remember thinking like i wish i could just walk in here with like an ice pick and just pick this fucking piece of moon <laughs> off so i get so i can get to the inside of it like the inside unsullied part of the moon and then take a piece of it it's kind of like how i have a piece of uh the berlin wall like i want just random pieces of this stuff you know so. I don't blame you for that. Yeah, though, there's something about that having a tangible piece of something. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, Dig. Well, that's all we have. I'll kick it over to you so we can wrap it up. All right. Neil Armstrong had the right stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, you're he cracking did. yourself up over there. I really am. It's not time for the dad joke yet. Not time. Not time. I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, my friend. That's prob- that's such an obscure joke that pro- people probably don't even understand that joke. <laughs> you think so? If they're like if they're like under 30 years old. Yeah, the right stuff's a, a pretty old. That's an old one. It's an old film at this point, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Def- that's definitely true. I just aged myself even more. All right, Kyle. Warm and fuzzy. Our closing segment. Little recap. Heroes edition. Kyle, we talked about briefly Luke Skywalker, Han Solo, little Indiana Jones. Who is mm. your go-to? Who's your favorite hero from TV or movies? My favorite hero. My favorite hero. 
God, that's a tough one. There's so many. I think I would answer this differently on any given day, but you know who came to mind for some reason? So I'm just going to be true to it. Jon Snow. Oh. I like Jon Snow. Okay. Jon nice. Snee. Jon Snee. Yeah. You know nothing, Jon Snee. <laughs> I was always <laughs> riveted by that character. I would definitely change my, my mind if I just could think about this more, but he came to mind. I, I'm just going to be true to it just because I feel like he, he remained patient. He was one of the only people in that movie you, or that show that you really could unabashedly root for. Everyone always had this kind of, and I don't want to spoil it for people. Always, everyone always had this grayness. You never really knew sure. what was going to happen. But Jon Snow was dealt the short end of the stick. He's kind of a bastard. He is a bastard of uh, the, the Winterfell family. And he just remains, he's sent to the wall and all that. And he just remains patient and you root for him. I also saw him in person at New York Comic Con once when I was at IGN. Oh, shit. That's and he's cool. like, and he's like four and a, and he, he was being interviewed like in the same room I was in at IGN. And He's like four feet tall. That guy is so small. Oh, is he really? He's really small. I, I remember never known. I remember, I remember walking by him. I like, you know, like within like shoulder distance of each other. And I remember being like, holy shit, this guy's small. But um, yeah, so that, I don't know. That's that's what came to mind. If I given more time, I would come up with a better answer. That's a good answer. I mean, yeah, one of those characters, one of the few characters in the whole series that's inherently good. I mean, he's just inherently a good, scrupulous type hero he doesn't have he doesn't yeah he doesn't have the great quality that so many of the characters in that show have yeah i agree with you on that for sure that's a good one now kyle here's an here's an interesting one hopefully this makes sense did you ever meet somebody or perceive somebody as a hero or someone to admire only for that person to turn out not to be somebody or let me let me phrase it this way only for that person to turn out to be somebody unworthy ultimately of your admiration a hero who actually turned out not to be a hero has that ever happened for you whether you knew them or not i don't know if it's exactly what you're asking for but you know who who's because i don't know that i've ever really looked at him as a hero but i definitely looked at him more positively is bill clinton comes to mind for me okay as a dude that i felt like growing up i was younger than i'm younger than you obviously but growing up i was bill clinton was president in the 90s and i would that was in like my adolescence and early teen years and even during the Monica Lewinsky stuff and all the rumors and rumblings of his cheating and all of that he still had like a lot of respect from people I think he would have won a third term if he was constitutionally eligible in 2000 even after he was impeached by this uh the house but he wasn't convicted obviously but I feel like all of the stuff that has come out about him in the last, especially the last five to 10 years, has just really painted a very different, much more sordid, and I'd even say sinister picture of the man. Mm -hmm. I think he's been plausibly accused multiple times of raping women, certainly sexually assaulting women he's been accused of, just completely faithless to his wife, just a real piece of shit, actually. And I'm not saying that the people that have occupied the office before or since are certainly now are models of virtue in any way but bill clinton just had a different vibe to him and when you really examine the man now based on what we think we know about him he's just kind of a fucking loser and it kind of happened quick bill clinton was kind of looked at as like one of the top third presidents for a while i think that people liked bill clinton people longed for the clinton years remember during the bush years yeah people were like oh man bill clinton go back to bill clinton no one feels that way everyone hates everyone hates the clintons (laughs) You know, it's kind of funny how that happened, right? Like if you're not American or you weren't around or you weren't like everyone hates them. 
But it was only 10 or 15 years ago. Everyone loved the Clintons. Yeah. I mean, Hillary Clinton was elected twice to the Senate. So and she was the secretary of state, but now everyone hates them. And I think that's well-deserved. I think it's totally well-deserved based on what we know. Accused. I'm not going to say Bill Clinton is definitely those things, but. Right. Allegedly. Allegedly. One of the, I think, smartest things Trump did during the 16 election was, I think, in the second, it was in the first or second debate with Hillary Clinton where he, you know, you can invite your own guests and they sit in the front row and he invited all of the women that accused Bill Clinton of sexual impropriety, which I thought was like one of the most ballsy, politically devious moves. And I think to, to unsettle Hillary and I think it worked. So. Not saying that's a good thing to do to make that theater. No, but that's certainly oh certainly he's a, certainly he's a liability at this point. And so I think, you know, you have your Jimmy Carter's who I think everyone no one really liked Jimmy Carter when he was president. Everyone's liked Jimmy Carter a lot since he's been president. Sure. You know, he's dedicated a lot of his time and energy and money. He still builds habitats for humanity. I think he's in like his late 90s now. You know, he's still he still donates and all of his time and does all this stuff. Everyone loves it's amazing. Everyone loves Jimmy Carter. And George Bush, George W. Bush is kind of in a, in a rehabilitation period, I think, too, because I think people realize he was not nearly as bad as everyone thought. Yes. Or a lot of people thought, you know, everyone was calling him a fascist. It's a little quaint now. <laughs> so, yeah, my answer to your question, nonetheless, is Bill Clinton, I think. Yeah, it's a good. That's a really good answer. I mean, that's a great. Yeah, it's a, it's funny how that whole thing took a turn with the Clinton family. It's like an alternate reality now for that whole that whole posse. And it's interesting. All right. Now, Kyle, we talked about Kobe just a few minutes ago. Which athlete overall do you find yourself admiring most? Could be past or present. It's got to be Derek Jeter, right? I was just talking about this with someone recently that you and I are both, especially we were big Yankee fans all throughout Jeter's tenure, really. I remember when he came in and, um, you know, I was in middle school and he never once I, I would be surprised if anyone can really message me anything even that would go against this. But he really never once disgraced himself, the team, the pinstripes. He never really had like an embarrassing thing. He was he hadn't he, he didn't have a contentious relationship with the fans. He didn't have a contentious relationship with the media, which is especially annoying in New York. So out of all the athletes I love and admire, there are lots of players in various sports that I love my favorite hockey players, for instance. But I don't know that I admire them, but I think I admire Derek Jeter, because he came into the biggest team in the world, the most famous sports team in all the world with under this microscope in the biggest city in the United States, in the capital of restaurants and beautiful women and whatever could have distracted him and distract many athletes and reasonably so I'd be distracted if I was a millionaire in New York City and he just kind of did his thing and so you can't help but respect that. And yeah. Oh, yeah. that's why I was a little disappointing that he went and did the stuff with the Marlins and he's kind of not a Yankee so much to me anymore as he used to be. But uh, you got to do what you got to do. He's an entrepreneur, but I'm always going to respect the hell out of him. And I, I very prominently had a poster of him on my wall growing up for many years. So, uh, yeah, so I'll go. I'll give a shout out to Derek Jeter. That's a great answer. I mean, the ultimate combination, right, of talent, attitude. And fortune, and not fortune meaning money, luck, meaning luck, meaning timeliness. I mean, he had a penchant like no other for making the timely hit, you know, making the timely, having, getting the timely hit, making the timely play. I mean, the way his luck sort of played out before us year after year, how he was like in that, he had that ability to make things happen. It was, and you know, like you said, the way he carried himself, never really an issue, never any kind of you know he he butted heads with the Yankees brass here and there 
but never any kind of fiascos that played out. It, it was it was unbelievable. It does make it. They should have made a a place for him somewhere front office wise somewhere somehow kept him in the organization. It seemed like he and there are there are a lot of legendary ball players and there are a lot of legendary Yankees, but he more than any other, you know, keep him in the organization. He is the face of the organization. He was the most for generations. He was the most important player. You know, I would argue the most important baseball player, not just the most important Yankee. But it was cool how he never, you know, he always skirted any kind of drama that he never really got embroiled in any kind of, you know, any really any wrongdoings or anything like that. The way he carried himself was it had to take a lot of effort. It it had to. And just the fact that he was able to do that and he was able to embrace the media market of New York and I, I think relish it. Even so, yeah, I would agree with you. I'm a huge Derek Jeter fan. I've never, he left baseball and took a bit, I mean, I I know a lot of us feel this way, but he left the sport and definitely took a part of me with him. You know, he was that, he meant that much to me. So, and I got to see his, I was there for his second to last hit at home, I think, which is really cool. Wow. Yeah. That is cool. Yeah. Epic stuff. Now, Kyle. We already talked. It's funny that you already talked so much about politicians. But if you had to come down to one, if you had to pick one politician, past or present, which one do you most admire? Oh, it's Teddy Roosevelt, definitely my favorite. Long Island's own, the only president to come from Long Island, and Teddy Roosevelt's just a, a really interesting figure. If you read about him, he was a sickly boy. He was an academic. He wrote books. He wrote what is still considered. The seminal history of the naval battles of the War of eighteen twelve, believe it or not, oh, um, wow. all this time later, he he wrote that in the uh, in the nineteenth century, and it's still considered like one of the great um, sources for that. And his sickliness was interesting because he had to overcompensate, and so he did. He 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 became really buff. If you look at old pictures of him and paintings and stuff, he's barrel chested, and it's because he was sickly. It's because he had to strive harder, and people understood much less about nutrition and fitness and all those things back in the day. And he was um, McKinley's vice president. He became president when McKinley was assassinated. He was reelected later. But the famous story about him is that he was in Wyoming. He was a great lover of nature. And uh, when McKinley was shot and killed, uh, he was in the middle of nowhere in Wyoming, like hunting and like staying in some cabin totally off the grid. This was in 1901. So they had telegraphs and stuff, but they had to send, they had to dispatch like military soldiers to find him to tell him that he's the president now and he needs to come back (laughs) holy shit because he was just out there like dicking around you know like hunting and like doing his thing and if you go to oyster bay obviously his home you can see all the stuff he hunted and killed and brought back but uh so yeah they had to like send soldiers and like go find him and be like dude uh, mckinley's dead and you got to be sworn in you need to go back to washington um and that's how he became president but it's not only the Long Island connection, although that's very obviously tantalizing to people like you and I, but it's just the the mark of the man. He he put it all out on the line during the, the war, uh, the Spanish-American War, 1898. He led his own battalion in that war right before he became president, which is really amazing. And that's where the, the, the Rough Riders, that's what they were called. And. Then he becomes he's president just a few years later. I mean, this is a man. I mean, Teddy Roosevelt is the consummate man's man. And I'm not necessarily always into that kind of person. I'm not that kind of person myself, but I find that so alluring and attractive about him. So he's definitely my favorite politician ever. And 
the also the most successful third party candidate to have ever run for president. Oh, wow. Um, as well. He ran third party in 1912 and he came in second. Uh, it's the only time a, a major party candidate didn't finish one and two. So, oh, wow. Holy cow. Yeah. yeah. So he was a bit of an interrupt, an early interrupter. I like. Yeah, that. he they wrote people wrote him into that extent. I mean, on the ballots, too. He came in second as a write in candidate. Holy so, shit. That's pretty meaningful. Yeah. So Teddy Roosevelt is definitely the dude. Long Island's own Teddy Roosevelt. You make me want to. He sounds like such an interesting character. You make me want to read about that dude. Yeah, he's great, man. He's he's a really I mean, he's very flawed. But if you read about FDR, they were distant cousins. But if you read about FDR, FDR was much more flawed and much more salacious and cheating on his wife and doing all that kind of shit. You don't really, you know, he had Roosevelt. FDR had like an affair with his secretary to the extent where when he was dying in 1945, he called for his mistress, not his wife, which is something that his which is something that his daughter set up and created an estrangement between his daughter and um, his wife when he passed away. So, oh, shit. A lot of interesting. Yeah, a lot of interesting stuff there. Eleanor Roosevelt, of course, is a legend as well. But so, yeah, Teddy Roosevelt, shout out. To Talk you. about controversy. Derek Jeter would never went in for that. Got mixed up in that. No, definitely shenanigans. Not. FDR. So FDR was like a trust cut fun kid. I love FDR, too, but he was a trust fund kid. And his mom, when he was cheating on his wife, when he was cheating on Eleanor in the beginning, in like the 1920s, when they first got married, his wife or his mom was basically like, if you don't stop cheating on her, I'm cutting you off. Oh, wow. And. That's basically how they had to kind of go underground. And it was that woman that he was cheating on with that was with him when he died. Oh, wow. 25 years later. What? Yes. Yeah. Isn't, cra- isn't that crazy? That's crazy. I forget her name. I think it was I think it was Lucy or something. I don't remember. Anyway, go ahead. That's so interesting. All right. So we talked a great deal at length about family today. But which of your friends, Kyle, do you particularly admire and why? What quality do you admire in that said friend? Yeah, I got to give a shout out to Ramon. I think that Ramon's got a stickiness and a and an and a intuitive nature of, of trying to get what he wants and being patient um, with his music. And it really has paid off with him more and more as he's gone on to become a touring musician and all that kind of stuff. So I got to give a shout out, I think, to him um, for that. I've always really admired that and been a little jealous of that because I love music and we all wanted anyone that's played music like we did. We always wanted to be professional musicians and stuff, and he really made it happen. So. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. I thought you might bring up Ramon. Uh, yeah, that takes tenacity. I mean, when you have a specialized thing that very few people are successful at that make it big at the fact that you could stick to it like that and be and use your passion and, you know, hold your hold your ground. I, I admire that very much. All right, Kyle, we have one, only one more. And I want right. to ask you, what qualities do you admire? Quality or qualities, plural. What do you admire in a significant other, a girlfriend? Humor, I think, is the most important mm. thing for me. Honesty and all those things and, and candor are really important as well. Vital. But I really, really need the girl that I'm with to think that things are funny. And it doesn't help if they think I'm funny. <laughs> but but. And I've actually always really liked that's how I've always gotten by with girls, I think, is just they think I'm funny which I always appreciate because I am goofy and I, and I like making, I love making girls laugh. I think it's just cute and all of that. But if a girl can't laugh, a woman can't laugh. And if she, she can't laugh at herself, can't laugh at me. I love being self-deprecating as everyone knows. And, and, and I really love irreverence and I love inappropriate humor. I just love it. I love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. I love 
disgusting humor and and, and just <laughs> raucous humor and shit you really can't and shouldn't say unless you're on a stage as a stand up. I love that stuff. And um, if someone doesn't find that funny too, like if they have a stick up their ass or they're a, a wet blanket, it's like, no, nah, I can't. I can't do that. And thankfully, even though I've not had, I've, I've obviously struck out with many women at this point, but I never had a, a woman that was just like a, a stick in the mud ever, which is nice. That you is know? nice. It's usually, it's usually something a little different, maybe more tragic sometimes, but yeah, I've never been with like a straight arrow. Like I could never tolerate being around someone like that. So yeah, so I think humor is the, the big one for me. What That's about you? a great answer. That's an awesome answer. I love that answer. I would snatch up that answer. I mean, for me, patience is important. I mean, maybe that's just because they have to deal with me. <laughs> yeah, I hear but that. humor, I like that because that that's a great barometer too in knowing what you need in a relationship. And that's a huge one. You know, you have to be able to, there's going to be shitty days. There's going to be shitty day, things that happen, maybe even tragic things, certainly unfortunate things. Things are not always going to go as planned. So having that, the ability to laugh ultimately and sort of just kind of ease that anxiety and ease the tension. Yeah, it's super important, man, on both sides. I love that answer. All right, Dave, let's uh, wrap things up with a dad joke. All right. I got one all ready for you here, my friend. Kyle, I always knock on the refrigerator door before I open it, just in case there's a salad dressing. <laughs> do 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 that's a pretty good one i like that one you like that one that's a pretty good one. yeah that's a pretty good one i never heard I like that, that one. one that's one of the ones i came across it's like you know very rarely it's like doesn't even ring a bell it's like okay i've never heard that joke maybe not the highest quality joke but i've never heard it's original at least give it some yeah, I like originality it. points i'm glad you like i it. think it was no i think it was a good one uh all right Dave. well that's all we have for this episode of knockback all about the people that inspired us as children we hope you enjoyed it why am i yelling <laughs> thank you so much for uh supporting us on patreon patreon.com slash collins last stand you can get cool perks there we couldn't do it without you so thank you so much for throwing us a few bucks a month if you can if not enjoy on free feeds share the show with your friends and family loved ones leave us nice reviews support our sponsors if you want whatever uh makes the most sense for you and we'll see you next time for more knockback until then goodbye Knockback is a product of and a registered trademark of Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded in Richmond, Virginia and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA. The show is produced by me, Colin Moriarty, and was conceived of by myself and Dagan Moriarty, who is also my co-host. You can find me on Twitter at NoTaxation and on Instagram at CLS Moriarty. Dagan is on Twitter at Dagan1973 and on Instagram at DaganLikesToDraw. Knockback is edited by Dustin Furman. As you know, all things Collins Last Stand, including Knockback, are fan-funded on Patreon at patreon.com slash Stand. The following names are at the producer level or higher on Patreon, and we are eternally grateful for your kindness, generosity, and fandom. Paul Joyce, Ryan T. Mandel, Jorge Palomino, Enrique Perez, Don Lee, Brad Cooley, SLDFMA, Daniel Diamore, Patrick Leslie, Jeremy Key, Joey Finelli, Azan, Ben, Michael Vecchio, Morgan Ashley, Miguel A. Brewer, Isaac Wastman, Zach Parsley, Ross Marenka, Jerome Ferreira, Stephen Nieder, Gregory Slavinsky, Bjorn Campbell, an unofficial controller podcast, Andrew Morgan, Constantine Valencia, Nick DeMarco, Jariah King, Homeworld Hub, Shane Rayum, Mark Boggio, Jonathan Reich, Chad Lewis, Keith A. Lewis, Lennon Brixey, Peter Reynolds, Greg Juliff, Spencer Brown, 
Moran, Joe McPartland, Eric Finkenbeiner, Lou and Ray Loper, Josh Bushing, Betty Ann Moriarty, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Tony Zuniga, Alex Cabrera, Corey Wyatt, Adam Nix, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Sean Chandler, Petro Rose, Justin Wagaman, Tyler Harris, Toby Schutman, Madmock Media, Lawrence F. Prokop, Toothless Gibbon, Martin Beck, Donnie Nolan, Todd Paxton, Josh Yeager, Miranda Grubba, Michael S., Marius Carson Peterson, William O'Carroll, Mike Wayne, Mubarak, Gerald Pennington, Phil Crone, Dylan Burns, Brian Chan, Connor Gashian, Throw Seven, Josh Gravelick, Tyler Bellow, Anton K., Sean Battershaw, Geo Corsi, Josh McKinney, Alan Tremblay, James Kinslow III, John Cordero, Organic Produce, Carl Tolman, Richter 86, Nathan R., Joshua Smallwood, McDog 18, Patrick Carper, George Anthony Nunez, Kyle Hagel, Colin Love, Ryan R. Kittredge, Barrett Boswell, Hugo's Desk, Chris Buston, Sean Mason, Damon Weathers, Matthew Purdue, Jesse Owen, Chris Galvin, Ryan Murdoch, Colin Davenport, Blake Israel, Sci-Fi Book Club, Anti Kinnanen, Taylor Barkley, Scott Lovelace, Andrew Parker, Robbie Hensley, Rodney Coleman, Chris Moore, Gavin, Bloody Fang, Eric Harden, Matt Martin, Mason Cadillac, Richard Hebert III, Saul Balcazar, Raul Melendez, Kevin Komaki, Of Fortuna, Boots, Megadet, TB Lightning, Galja, Darren Gardner, Daryl E. Naiman, David Castanez, Greg Lada, Christopher DeVaio, Ray Laja, Jay Getter, Vexius, JJ Game, Jeff McCardo, Zach Bonham, Colin Jewell, Nelson LeBlanc, Daniel Johnson, Lettereant Johnson, Nick Thornton, and Casual Misfits Gaming. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.